This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show retired FDNY Deputy Chief and the President of the Lieutenant Joseph P. DiBernardo Memorial Foundation, Chief Joe DiBernardo. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Chief's early life, his journey into the military and time in Vietnam, his path into the fire service, numerous fire service stories from the war years, his son Joseph's journey into FDNY, the tragic events at the 178th fire, also known as the Black Sunday fire, losing his son in 2011, the creation of the foundation, the importance of bailout equipment, and so much more. Now, I also want to add onto this intro some thank yous that he had forgotten to mention in the recording. So Chief DiBernardo wanted to also thank the Suffolk County Fire Academy instructors, Colony Texas Fire Academy instructors, Bobby Eckert, Kevin Use, Ricky Stassi, Bill Rohr, MJ Stark, Jeff Cool, Mike McGuinness, Eric Riedel, Frank Marotta, Jenny McClelland, Dave Walters, Jeremy Walters, Paul DiBiase, Brian Use, Steve Sanguidolci, Affordable Drill Towers, Brian Crow, Dennis Whittam, Leila and Isabel Rydell, Max Mazus, Alexa and Jamie Use, and all of the sponsors and donors that made it possible at his foundation. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. 
Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chief Joe DiBernardo. Enjoy. Well, Chief, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, um, I'm honored that you uh, thought of me and you asked me to come on this wonderful podcast. I've listened to a number of your episodes and you have some great people on there. I hope I can contribute a little to somebody else uh, learning something or to the betterment of... Uh, everybody's lives or i hope i just can be a plus factor oh you definitely will absolutely um i already know obviously a lot of things that we're going to talk about um very first question where on planet earth are we finding you today right now i'm sitting in the bunker no, i'm sitting in my basement on out in long island in miller place new york at my home this is my command center where i run uh this is my i run my charity out of Beautiful. Well, I want to start at the very beginning of your story. Obviously, we'll get to your son as we kind of progress through. But tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, I was I was born a long time ago. <laughs> I was born and uh, I was born in Brooklyn. In a, in a section of Brooklyn called East New York, which is mostly an Italian, uh, very you know, poor Italian Jewish neighborhood. Uh, and that was the 7-3 and the 7-5 precinct today, which is the murder capital of the world in the city. And my father uh, enlisted in World War II. He joined the Navy. He's part of the greatest generation. I had an, uh, an older sister, so my father went into the Navy, and we lived with my, we were born in East New York, and we lived with my grandparents. So then my grandfather bought a house in Queens, New York, in Richmond Hill, New York, a uh, private dwelling, and we moved with my grandparents. So I lived with my grandparents and my aunts growing up. We lived on the second floor of the house. My two aunts had a room. My mother and father had a, we had a, a, a living room, a bedroom, and a small, uh, another small bedroom and a tiny kitchen with no, no stove, just a sink. We ate with our grandparents downstairs. And then uh, my father was off in the Navy. And when I was like three or four, we went out to California to be with him and my mother those days, there was no air travel. We took the train all the way out to California. I can imagine a woman without two little kids. That must have been tough. And then my I remember my Italian grandmother came. She, she hardly spoke any English. And she came out and visited us in, 
state was up in Washington State, Birmingham, Washington, in the Navy Yard. I can't imagine a woman who could only speak English traveling across the country. But different people, you know, the greatest generation and their parents. So my parents were first generation American. So uh, after the war, my father worked for the Navy Yard. He became an electrician in the Navy Yard. And then my, my parents had, we lived with my grandparents. They built the house. We stayed in that house. I had a younger sister. And my father was working in the Navy Yard. And he always had two jobs, my father. Always two jobs to pay the bills. And we bought a house in Richmond Hill, Queens. The property with the building lot was probably 20 by 60. Houses were only like 15 feet wide, three stories. The two, you know, two stories with an attic frame house. And it was like the greatest thing in the world because I went from sleeping on the living room couch to having my own bedroom. My own bedroom, you could touch the walls and it had no uh, closet. But it was the greatest thing in the world. And one of the greatest things about it, it was on the corner was a park, a playground. And I grew up in that playground with all the local friends. And there was a candy store on the corner. And we'd go in and have a nickel Coke. And it was, we played sports 12 hours a day. Everybody knew everybody in the neighborhood. And uh, it was just the, the greatest thing in the world to grow up in a neighborhood where you could walk through everything, where everybody knew everybody. And it was wonderful, just wonderful. Um, my father, like I said, always worked two jobs. I uh, went to high school uh, from Queens into Manhattan. Now, I, uh, my parents, I, I had to go to a Catholic high school. You can't go to public school. Parochial school. I don't want to go. I want to go to with my friends that go to Richmond Hill High School. No, you're going. So in those days, um, they, the cheapest Catholic high school they could find was St. Agnes on 44th Street in Manhattan and 3rd Avenue. It was only built in like 1870 or something. It was like, but it was only $15 a month tuition. And they can afford that. Now, my, some of my friends went to another school where it was $25 a month tuition. They couldn't afford that. So I went to this dump. We didn't even have a gym. So um, made a lot of friends. I ran track for them, played basketball for them. And it, it was just great. Everything was great about it. And um, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm still friends with people from grammar school. There was 10 of us. Uh, five of us are left. And we, we went from, we graduated from the uh, candy store to the bar. And that bar just closed this year. And it was just a wonderful upbringing. Very happy. I was blessed. I think my generation was blessed because my parents were first generation and they had to live through the the depression. My generation, we grew up in a neighborhood where everybody knew everybody and you could walk to everything. A lot of uh, those neighborhoods changed. So a lot of us moved to the suburbs where you couldn't walk to the candy store and you couldn't hang out in the park. You had to be driven everywhere. So I, I, 
my generation, I think, is the best of all generations. We had, we had it made. Now, you talked about where you were first born becoming murder capital of the world. Um, through your eyes, because you've got a civilian's eyes and obviously you've got a, you know, a firefighter's eyes as well, a very, a very unique percept- perceptive that I don't think a lot of people understand. Like We see things that 99% of the, the, the population doesn't. What have been the the changes that have contributed towards some of the areas that you used to live in now being as dangerous as you mentioned? That's a good question. Um, that er- that area, it's still one of the. It, 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 I don't know what changed. The population changed, and um, it just began to burn down during the fire was uh, Fountain Avenue in East New York, where I grew up, the entire block burned down. Uh, it, it just, the um, demographics changed. You know, the, the Italians and the Jewish moved out and they were replaced by other ethnic uh, groups. And uh, as a matter of fact, where I ro- lived in Richmond Hill, it was all uh, Irish, Italian, German, Jewish, Everybody you could think of that neighborhood uh, in the late, I'd say early. Um, my family lived there till the the seventies uh, or eighties. That neighborhood has changed too, and that neighborhood went from uh, those ethnic groups—German, Irish, Italian, and everything. That neighborhood went to another demographic where that neighborhood really changed. And that neighborhood who never had a fire, <laughs> now is, is a busy area. But one thing though is, um, my father paid $8,000 for his house. Now, and it was a one family house that had a small kitchen that you couldn't sit around. You had, it was against the wall. And we had a little kitchen in the basement and we had three bedrooms on the second floor and an unfinished attic. I went back there many years later and every build and you could put one, each family had one car. Now I went back to my house many years later, I would say, let's say 10 years ago. And that one family became a three family with a family on the first floor, family on the second floor, the attic was converted, a family on the third floor, cubicles in the basement with people living in the basement. And every house on the block had bars on the windows. And you couldn't find a, I couldn't find a parking space to go look at my house. So I, one family houses became three family houses with, with uh, rental cubicles. And I was talking to a guy on the street and those houses were going for $600,000. So times change, people change, you know. And neighborhoods change. They get good and bad. They they went from good to bad, and now they've been gentrified again. A lot of areas I worked in as a fireman or as a lieutenant, like uh, Williamsburg, Bushwick, the Lower East Side. I was a captain on the Lower East Side. The tenements were vacant. You could get them from back taxes. Now they're selling for like $4 million. <laughs> Same thing in, in Harlem. You could buy, you could get them from back taxes. I think the politicians had that wrapped up because in the Bronx, we tore everything down. In Manhattan, they never tore them down. 
So I don't know who somebody bought them, rehabbed them, and now they're selling for millions, which you could have got for back taxes. There was some tomfoolery going on there. <laughs> there's still is today. <laughs> you know, like Williamsburg, and that was yuppie, and uh, Bushwick, where I worked in Bushwick, like it was like it was Bushwick was horrible. I know uh, people were getting apartments, getting gentrified, Bushwick. Alphabet City, the Lower East Side. You're familiar with Manhattan, right? I am, sir. Yes. Well, you know Alphabet City right now. It's there's a there's a boutique in every third building, and you can't rent an apartment down there. When I was a captain down there, they were all vacant, burning down. Twenty eight and eleven on East Third. I was uh, I forget what street they were on now. There was a, there was a it was they called it the drug crossing. They had the street marked drug crossing because the junkies used to knock on the door when they were stoned and everything. It's amazing if we would have known we'd all be millionaires. <laughs> well, it's interesting as well because with the gentrification, um, the you know the question is obviously all right, where where are the lower income people going to? You know, this is the the poverty issue that we see. You know, as as uh, you know, as, know, yeah, as as you as you. When you see the relationship between poverty and desperation, I mean, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna have a, a negative effect in an area, and you see it in places like Detroit, you know, thriving at one point, the industry closes down, and then, you know, it's, it's the opposite end of the spectrum now. Yeah, I was up at the my my last area was up in the South Bronx, and everything was vacant, torn down in lots. And when I went back there recently to uh, for the ceremony, I rode around. When I left, there were all lots. Now they're all multiple dwellings. And I was talking to the guys. He said they're fully occupied and they're all, um, they're all, um, you know, subsidized housing people in there, whatever that number is that they use to give them subsidized housing. So everything's occupied up there. Now, I don't know if they're putting the, uh, the new immigrants in there, but they're all occupied. You know, South Bronx is only a subway ride away from Manhattan. So it's quite interesting that the, the, the area, even the area I worked in that was vacant in lots has been built on. And there a lot of subsidized housing in there. Around Charlotte and 170, I have a famous photograph of that. There's, the only thing standing is the fire alarm box and three other buildings. It looks like Berlin after the war. Or after the war, I should show you that I have that picture around these subways. 20 years ago, they, the, the government came in and put up two and three family occup, owner-occupied dwellings that transformed the whole neighborhood. You, if, you, if you wanted, you had to live in the building. So if you're going to live in the building that you own, you're going to take care of it. It was the best move they ever made. It, it, it just gave rebirth to the area. Instead of just... Um, giving them rent checks and then moving them into a, in the seventies and the sixties, they burn them out and they would give them 300 dollars to move into another apartment. That whole scam back in the sixties and seventies that I'm sure you know about. No, I do now. I wasn't aware of that specifically, but uh, yeah, I mean, that must've been pretty horrific arson in that time then. You know, you know well, the, the buildings, the owners were getting more in insurance than they were getting in rent. And so, um, if you had a fire, the, the city would relocate you. They would give you X amount of money to move into a new apartment. So a lot of people 
the building started to deteriorate. The owner didn't want to repair it. The building was worth more to him if he got burned down and he got insured. So he didn't repair it. So the people, a lot of people wised up and they set their own apartments on fire. Then they got a check from the government and they went into a new apartment. So that that was a recurring theme up there. And I remember just telling uh, in 1976. In the South Bronx, 300,000 families were burnt out. Just think of that number. And I just recalled the figure in 1976, we had 156,000 structural fires in the South Bronx, just in the South Bronx. There was the North Bronx. There was the Lower East Side. There was Harlem, Washington Heights. There was Brownsville, East New York, Crown Heights, Bushwick. I mean, the city was like, was nuts, but. There was actually more than 156,000 structural fires. I tell a story when we would go out and we if you had a say rubbish in a vacant building, it was considered structural fire because it was in a building. In those days, we had manual typewriters, the officer. The chief always made out the fire report, but the chief was always at another fire. So the ranking officer at the fire, lieutenant or captain, had to go back to quarters and type up the fire, hunt and peck firefighters, uh, typewriters. None of us could type. If it was a rubbish fire, we had a form that was a one-line entry. So a lot of structural fires that we went in with one line or the boost line, knocked it down, put it out and left, became outside rubbish fires instead of structural fires because we didn't want to type out the reports. So in 1956, we probably had 200,000 structural fires in the city. Just think of that number. You know, like, and a, a lot of the big cities were going through the same thing. You know, again, 200,000 structural fires. And, and just in the, in the Bronx, 300,000 families. Now, the big H's that we operated in, five-story H's had five apartments on a floor. That's 25 families in an apartment. They were all burnt out. It was terrible. Thank God we'll never see that again. We'll never see that again. And the guys that uh, lived, the guys that, um, those firefighters that went through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, the amount of fire duty they saw was incredible. And thankfully, we'll never see them again. And they're the most experienced uh, firefighters in the world. And you've probably interviewed a lot of them, I'm sure. They're they're amazing, it's, you know the amount of fire duty they did, and they wrote the book on firefighting. Guys like Vinny Dunn, Bob Farrell, all those guys. They wrote the book on all the tactics that we are using today. They wrote the book. Well, I want to get to your military career before we kind of walk you through your fire service journey. Um, so when you're in high school. Were you dreaming of entering the military originally? Were you dreaming of becoming a firefighter or was there something else on your mind? Well, actually, I never really knew what I wanted to do. My father worked in the Navy Yard. That didn't look too appealing to me. Um, I I always was into sports. So I, I, 
I was always thinking about maybe I'd like to go into uh, my brother-in-law is a teacher. Maybe I'd like to go into teaching, but, you know, maybe I'd like to go into coaching. So I really started thinking about going into teaching and coaching, but I really had, had no direction. Um, uh, no really goal. Like some guys grow up, they like uh, you had uh, John uh, uh, Norman on. He always knew he wanted to be a firefighter. And a lot of these people, I wanted, I always wanted to be a cop. I always wanted to be a doctor, lawyer, firefighter. I never knew what I wanted to be. As a matter of fact, I still don't know what, what I want to be when I grow up. But my mother did tell me, best advice I ever received. She said, they lived through the Depression. She said, you have to take a civil service test. The only people in the neighborhood that were working during the depression were cops and firemen. So you have to take the test. I said, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know any firemen. And I, I, don't, I don't think I want to be a cop. I spent my, high, my teenage years being chased by cops, you know? And, and by the way, a cop could never catch a teenager with sneakers. That's for sure. We outran them every time. So um, I said, okay, I was going to school. I, uh, they wanted me to go to college. I wanted, I didn't want to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to take. But my parents were first generation American. I was second generation. I was the first one in my family to attend college, both sides. And they were very proud of that. So they, now I'm going to college. I have no idea what I'm doing there. But my mother says, you got to take a civil service test. It was 1961, I believe, or 62. I said, okay, I'll take the fire test. So I take the fire test. I didn't even know a fireman. Okay, fast forward. Um, I was into high school sports. I was on the basketball team. I sat on the end of the bench, but I did play club ball, organized ball, uh, Elks, CYO, and all that stuff. I was pretty good at it, too. But I was short, and uh, but I was good enough to make some all-star teams and all that. Uh, I tried out for the team in college, and the guards were six feet tall, and I was 5'8". So they took the six-foot guys. So I became the, the student manager. And I met some Hall of Famers in my career in there in college, still not knowing what I wanted to be. So I took a liberal arts course, hoping to become a teacher. All right. Um, I graduated. I got a job in retail. And uh, that was interesting. Um, and I started to take courses to go to become a teacher. And then the, uh, the army called. So I said, okay, guess I'll go in the army and see what that's all about. While I was in the army, I went out west. I had a lot of good training with the 10th Cavalry. And then I went to recon school and all that, blah, blah, blah. And um, then I heard about this place called Vietnam. I, I, I couldn't find Vietnam on a map and, and neither could anybody else. But uh, the army was gearing up to go there. I was in the 4th Infantry Division. And um, I relocated 
to the East Coast, to the 5th Infantry Division, because my mother was ill. So it was called compassionate reassignment. Uh, now, they're gearing up to go to Vietnam. We don't know where we're going, but uh, I remember the, I, went, I, was on opera, I was in a recon platoon, which is assigned to headquarters company. And I, they, we get these maps one day, and I'm looking at these maps with all these uh, rice paddies on it and everything, the topographical maps. And it's a big secret, but the secret was they were going to Vietnam. So I looked it up on a, on a globe. I said, oh, wow, that's the other side of the world. Now I've been training to be a soldier. So um, they, they were going to get reflagged from the 5th Infantry to the 1st Infantry Division. Guys that were short timers or guys that were on compassion and reassignment didn't have to go. So I said, you know, I've been trained to be a soldier. I think I want to find out if I can be a soldier. So I raised my hand. I says, I'm going with you. Well, they said, you, you're on compassion and reassignment. You don't have to go. I said, I want to go. So I went. <clears throat> and we were the second. The, um, the Marines got there in March. 173rd Airborne Brigade got there in June or July. I think we got there in August. We were the first division in army division in country and uh we went around clearing the land before other units came in we were up at a place called coochie did you ever hear of that not that town though coochie there's a book out called tunnels of coochie that's where the 25th infantry division put their headquarters they put it over a tunnel complex the Viet Cong had a tunnel complex under the ground when we were up clearing that area, every night we'd go into a circle and we'd set up. And every night, somebody would pop up, blow off a magazine. We could never figure out how they're getting inside the wire. What it was, was they were in tunnels underneath us. We didn't even know that. So one day we found a tunnel opening and one of the, you know, let's, uh, we threw smoke down the tunnel then. All of a sudden, smoke was coming out over there, coming out over there, and over there out of the ground was tunnels all over the place. They said, okay, go down here and check it out. He said, no, nah, I'm not going down there. I'll throw tear gas down there, but I'm not going down there. We hadn't developed the tunnel rats yet at that time. Those guys were the bravest guys I ever met. So we throw tear gas down here, CN, CS. And all of a sudden, the holes would pop out and they'd come out and, you know, we'd, we'd capture them. The, the smart ones that didn't come out shooting. And we'd take them back for interrogation and stuff. So then we'd run convoys and uh, for the uh, resupply in different units. Um, it, was, it was, you know, it was pretty good. We were in some good stuff, interesting stuff. Um, you, you, get, you, you find out what you're made of when you're in combat. The guys that were real tough guys in the States weren't so tough when the bullets started flying. And the little, the little quiet guys that were never said a word, never said a peep. When the stuff hit the fan, they stood up and fired back and did what they did to their job. They did what they had to do. A lot of the guys cowered behind a berm when we're shooting like this. So you really found out what you're made of when you're getting shot at. We had some, a lot of close calls. A lot of my friends uh, didn't come home. Um, 
it was a hot, terrible. The area I was in was heavily sprayed with Agent Orange. Um, I saw a lot of gruesome things, and we uh, we weren't heroes. We just did our job, and uh, like I said, you you really find out what you're made of when bullets are whizzing past your head. You know how close they are when it sounds like a whip cracking. That's when they're about this close. And I heard that a lot. And I was in convoys where the vehicle in front of me went 50 feet in the air. So it's all a matter of luck. And I, I always remember I went from the recon platoon to the operations section where I carried the radio for the operations officer, which is the number one target. Because uh, the enemy knows that's where the command and control is. Uh, and not only uh, it was a battalion radio. So we, I had a radio. The guy behind me had the brigade radio. The guy behind him carried the spare. So not only did we have one radio, we had three. And they usually would wait till the command group came in and then they would hit us at the command group level. And a couple of nice experiences. Uh, but we did our jobs. And uh, I'm proud of the fact that I survived. And to me, the 58,000 guys died for nothing. People are going on vacation to, to you know, Ho Chi Minh City. It was, uh, I lived in, uh, I lived in, we didn't have base camps because we were there early. We, I lived in the ground and I got there at the end of the rainy season. So I lived in a hole in the ground with a little, uh, my poncho on top of me to keep me dry. Two guys in a hole. One guy always awake. 50% alert every night. When the rain came, you couldn't see 10 feet. Um, then I went through the dry season. Um, snakes, cobras, scorpions. Uh, the bugs were horrible. A lot of guys caught malaria. It was just uh, the, the heat was unbelievable cutting LZs for medevacs, calling in artillery fire. In those days, we didn't have GPS. So we did everything by map, reading, and triangulating. And when we'd stop for the night, the first thing we did when we dig it in, we would call in RON, remain overnight artillery support. And we had an FO with us, an artillery officer, and we were always hoping that he was a good one because we went by landmarks. So he would call in the first round and the first round where we never knew where it was going. And a lot of them came, a lot of the first rounds came in amongst us. We took a lot of friendly fire casualties. We would call in three rounds to zero the artillery. So if we got hit during the night, they could defend us. But I remember every night we dug in, it was horror when we, when we fired our, our, our RONs. I was standing next to the battalion surgeon once when we called the RON in. Well, actually, we were on the ground. And the battalion surgeon was from Schenectady, New York. And the first round was a short round. And it came in amongst us. And he got wounded, the battalion surgeon. And I actually found him like 40 years later. And I contacted him and he said, yeah, Joe, I got the million dollar wound. He was hit and he was medevac, went back to the States and became a doctor up in Schenectady. 
Today, everybody has a GPS. So you know exactly where you are. So you can call in your artillery fire, danger close, and you're pretty safe. But nothing like, uh, I'll tell you one, one, nothing like being on the ground when you call airstrikes in. It's amazing. Um, we had a, a FAC, a forward air controller with us. That is a Air Force officer. And his radio man, who was in Air Corps, he was in the Na- he was in the Air Force, and he's right down down on the ground with us with the infantry. And he said, "Man, I drew I joined the Air Force to get out of this crap, and I'm down on the ground just like with you guys." And and, and there's nothing when like having we had um, F uh, F um, F four Phantoms come in, Navy Phantoms. Did you ever hear a jet go ever had a Navy jet? Did you ever hear a at an air show or something? Yes, I have. Yes. Oh, the, the, the loudness of it. Now they're coming in. They're doing, I don't know, 400, 500 miles an hour. They're on the deck and they drop two 250 pound bombs. And I'm telling you, man, it's like, holy, it's amazing. The roar. You know, like, well, maybe we took a little sniper fire. Then uh, they, in those days, when they went back to the carrier, they had to drop their load before they went back to the carrier because they couldn't land on the carrier with any armament. So we would get a call from, say, uh, Whirly Bird 3-0. This is Whirly Bird 3 I'm on my way home. You got anything for me? Yeah, you know, we just got a little sniper fire from uh, this poor Viet Cong over there just fired an old M1 at us. I said, well, if you, want, if you want to drop the load, I'll give you, we'll give you the coordinates. So he proceeded to drop like $200,000 worth of ordinance on this poor one little Viet Cong that took a pot shot at us. <laughs> Funny things, man. Uh, but it was, a, it was a great experience. And you find out if you, you got it or if you don't got it, you know. And, and I, you know, and I proved to myself that I could do what was right. And I can go into a lot of other stories about the military, but uh, I don't want to brag about anything. I just, I, I'm proud that I served, you know. What was the the reception back home? Obviously, as the war progressed, there was there was more, you know, um, resistance to it. You sound like you got in pretty early. Was that occurring even when you were out there? Okay, when I, I was discharged in Oakland. And there uh it, it it was already starting to get bad. I remember they told me, "Don't wear your uniforms when you leave the post. Uh, when you when you go leave town." Now I, I spoke to guys from my unit later on, and they were called baby killers, all that other crap. And uh, I re- I remember when I went to the fire department, I was going to join the post, the Met- the American Legion post, or the VFW post, the the fire department post. And the first meeting I went to, now, when I went in the fire department, most of my officers and senior men were World War II guys. The war ended in 45. I went, I joined in 66. So there were 20 years. Most of the officers were World War II vets or Korean vets. Some of them were POWs. And I never forget the meeting I went to, and, the, and they said, you guys are losing the war over there. We never lost the war. What the hell's going on with you guys? And I said, well, I, I was never in an engagement that we lost. And it put a bad taste in my mouth. So I never joined the VFW or the uh, American Legion. 
Um, it was um, the, the country was turning. It, it really turned during the uh, the Tet Offensive. I believe the Tet Offensive was '68 when Walter Cronkite made that famous statement on his broadcast. You know, like he already said, you know, there's some, we're losing this war. There's something wrong here. You know, it's very very poorly managed. Um, I, I remember going on operations and we were told you can't, you're not, can't cross that river. That's Cambodia. You know, we chased them to the river, then we couldn't go into Cambodia, which is stupid. Or you couldn't fire, don't fire into that, towards that town or that village. The rules of engagement were stupid. You know, um, when you go into a war, you should fight to win the war and use everything you got. And, and we didn't do that. The individual soldier, they were great. And the company officers, it was up at the McNamara at that level that screwed up the war. He had some stupid ideas, McNamara. You know, he thought he was going to put a wall up. You know, if you put a wall up, you walk around the wall. They were, you know, they were bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail and they were just kept coming and coming and coming. You know, the, 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 war was, the, the war was fought piecemeal instead of all out like World War II. We could have won that war. Uh, you know, we didn't lose a major battle. We lost, we might have got our ass kicked in some engagements, but we went back and won the battle. It was just mismanaged and it's a waste of 58,000 lives. And all the trauma that came after that with the uh, PSTD and all PTSD and suicides, the disease, the cancer from Agent Arms, et cetera. And just like Afghanistan was a waste. We lost 3,000 guys in Afghanistan. We bailed out of there. They're, they're in Afghanistan again. You go to a war, if you got, you don't go to a war and, and fight at piecemeal. You go all out. And like Patton said, you, your job is to kill more of them than to kill more of us. That's all. End of story. So what was that transition like for you? You said that, you know, that, that you were told not to wear uniform, not so much that day, but the, the weeks after one moment you're in Vietnam. Now you're standing back on American soil. Did, did you have any struggles with that transition initially? Not really. Um, um, I was um, met at the airport with my little nieces and nephews with American flags, which was very, very happy. And when I was in the army, I was called to the fire department. And I said, uh, I was called January 65. I said, I'm a little busy right now. I'll get, I'll get in touch with you when I get back. So I had corresponded with them, them saying I'm being discharged in March of 66. And within April, May, within less than three months, I was appointed to the fire department. So it was a very quick transition from military life uh, to civilian life. And I went in FDNY. My, I had a very small probationary fire class, mostly made up of veterans that had been Vietnam vets. So, you know, we were all, we weren't kids. We we're all men, grown men. And we were, a lot of us were combat veterans. Uh, one of my classmates, Freddie DeFeo, was in the Battle of the Yardrang with the Cav. And I had another guy who was with me in the 1st Infantry Division. So 
a lot of a lot of combat vets, older guys. They didn't have that today. If you in pro in probationary fire school in the city, I don't know when it started years ago. They have like a a, a drill instructor mentality where they yell at them and they run everywhere and all that. We didn't do any of that. We just we were men. They treated us like men. A very small class, fifty something guys. And I went, you know, eight weeks then. I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know a fireman. Never was in a firehouse. Didn't know a fireman. And I got assigned to company 39 engine. And uh, I, I go up there. I, re, I report in. And uh, said hello to the guys. Introduced myself. Okay, you're coming to work this day. Uh, what'd you do? What, what, what were you? I said, oh, I just got out of the army. I didn't say I just came home from Vietnam. No, I didn't tell you. You didn't, I didn't talk about it. Uh, they didn't know who I was. They just, well, we got a probie. Um, what did he do? Oh, I think he, he said he just got out of the army. This is a funny story. So, uh, and it, I didn't brag about it. It was nothing to brag about. I did my duty for my country. Um, so one of the first runs I go on, we have a manhole fire. Okay, the manhole smoldering. Did you live in Manhattan? No, no, sir. I've lived um, in America. I lived on the West Coast in um, Orange County area and then in Florida in the Orlando area. Okay. And well, in Manhattan, we have all these manholes with the electrical conduits in it. And a lot of times they, the wires cook, the manholes blow. And it sounds like it's a major explosion. I mean, they, they'll break the windows five stories high. And it's very, they're very dangerous. So we have a manhole fire around the corner. We usually stretch a line and uh, we'll pull the cover and we'll flood it. The electric company doesn't like you to do that. They don't like you to flood it because then they got to pump it out and all this other crap. So anyway, and when the cover goes, forget it. It, it lifts cars up. They blow 75 feet in the air. These things weigh like 150 pounds. So we're just standing by, getting ready, maybe to pull the cover. We stretch the line and stand there. The manhole blows. It, you know, it's like, it sounds like a major explosion. And uh, as soon as I heard that, my mind kicked in. I had a flashback. To me, it sounded like incoming. And automatically reflex, I hit the deck. Now the guys are standing around like this, the manhole blows, they just, you know, they look around, I'm laying on the ground. They look and go, holy shit. What did they send us from Proby School? Look at this guy, he's laying on the ground. So now I'm totally embarrassed. So I, I stand up and I say, sorry guys, I, I just had a flashback. Well, what'd you have? I said, I, I just had a flashback. Six weeks ago, I was in Vietnam and it sounded like our incoming, incoming. Oh, you were in Vietnam? Yeah, I, I just got back six weeks ago. Oh, we didn't know that. But they thought I was like a piece of shit, a coward. Now it's a little different because I told them, yeah, I was in Vietnam and uh, that's, I, it was an automatic reflex. Okay, so. Now I'm a probie. They probably have their doubts about me. So I got to be the toughest guy in the room. 
at any fire. Those days, the, the guys didn't wear masks. The, usually the Johnny, the Johnny would be the last guy, the junior man, the Johnny would break the last cup, the hose, hook it up to the thing, and then he would grab a mask and go in with the mask and relieve the guy on the nozzle. So we had a bunch of jobs. You know, and I'm relieving the guy in the nozzle. And he said, this, this job's not that bad. I can do this job. You know, it's great. I loved it. We'd go back to the firehouse. We'd wash up, watch a little sports, go to a fire, have a nice meal. And I'm saying, did I, you get paid for this? Did they actually pay you to do this? Hang around with the guys, go to fires. Everybody, the fire engines go by, everybody runs to the fire. I'm getting paid to go to fires, make dinner with the guys, hang out. And uh, a check comes every two weeks. I said, this is great. I love this. Uh, so now, you know, we're going forward. We're going forward. This is 66. 60, I can do the job here. Um, 1968, they have a... Um, and by the way, every fire I went to, and I, it, it was great. And it was uh, exciting, exhilarating, and I never had one ounce of fear. 68, they have a transfer order. They have a big lift because um, they want to take the guys from the so-called busy companies and put them in the, the more medium companies and the guys in the medium companies up in the busy companies. I'm the junior man. So they send me up to Holland, 36 engine. Now I go up there. Now I already proved myself in 39 engine. Now I got to reprove myself in 36 engine. You go in and uh, a bunch of jobs up there in Harlem and put out the fires. It's no problem. Piece of cake. Those days, the building construction was different. They had single pane windows. Uh, the mattresses had were made out of straw. Furnitures were made out of wood. It wasn't plastic, foam rubber, double pane windows. You know, if you turned the corner and the fire was coming out the window, it was great. You could walk in down the hall and put the fire out. So I'm responding with 36 engine. I had great legendary firefighters. I had a legendary World War II officer, Joe Gasparino. And I could do the job as, better, as good as any of and usually when you went to work, if you wanted the nozzle, if you got in early, you put your helmet on the nozzle and your coat there. So when the run came in, you had the nozzle. Now, if a senior man's working and he wanted the nozzle, he would take your helmet and throw it on the ground. So anyway, I, put, I never forget this. We, I put my helmet on the nozzle. We get a run and the senior man took up, went home. We, we had a it went to a, a fifth alarm. It got into like three or four buildings, 10 of it. It got into the shaft and it went left and right to the two tenements on either side. So 36 engine, I had the nozzle. And we put out three floors of fire. I had the nozzle, three floors of fire. Piece of cake. I was in good shape in those days. I'll never forget the guy said to me, he said, what are you, one man fire department? I said, no, this is easy. I love this. This is great. I was in good shape in those days. And we had an inch and a half line. This is before we went to inch and three quarter and all that. And you really could maneuver an inch and a half line. So we put out three floors of fire. And I think I made my bones at that fire with 36. So 
And I worked with the legendary um, Larry Fitzpatrick, who was a legend, became a legendary fireman. Larry and I went to Proby School together. And on, at Proby School graduation, they put on a big demonstration for the families. And Larry and I went off the five-story building and we did the single slide. And we practiced that for a week. So we must have did 50 single slides. Roof, you know, and if people out there don't know what a single slide is, you get up on the roof and you slide down the side of the building, five stories. It's to rescue somebody. Ironically, you fast forward a few years after Larry left 36, he went to a 26 truck, then he went to rescue three. He wound up dying at the Fitzpatrick Frisbee fire. Frisbee was a probie in Ladder 28 in Harlem, and he was trapped in a window at a fire. Larry was on the roof in Rescue 3. Larry did the single slide, grabbed Frisbee, the rope broke, and they both were killed. So it's ironic that Larry and I went to probie school together, and we did the single slide for graduation, and that's how Larry died in the job doing the single slide to rescue a fireman. So we had some legendary guys in 36. It was under the L in Harlem. It was, it's a single firehouse, real seedy area of Harlem. But it was a great firehouse and a lot of great guys. And I loved it there. But at that time, I'm still going to college thinking I'm going to be a teacher and a coach. And I was taking graduate courses at Hunter College which was on 68th Street and Lexington Avenue, right around the corner from 39 engine and 16 truck. So I transferred back to 39 because I was taking college courses there. And then I wound up uh, going into 16 truck. Okay. Um, back up a minute. When I was a probie, I was at the 23rd Street fire. You know the, you know the 23rd Street fire, right? We lost a dozen guys. Yes, sir. Okay, so I, I, I went down there early in the morning. We we had stood by with a watch line. So I was at one of the most famous uh, fires in the FDNY history, the Twenty Third Street fire. Now I'm in Sixteen Truck. I could tell you a, a lot of funny stories about the making rescues and grabs and all that stuff. I don't know if you want to hear that stuff. Absolutely. Well, okay. I'm in 16 truck. We get a job one day. I crawl in. Couch is gone. I call in. I make a search. As I feel a body, I pull out. It's a female. Get her out in the hallway. They're looking female. So I start giving her mouth to mouth. And my, the other guy starts giving her impressions. It's a pretty girl. I was giving her mouth to mouth. So while I'm giving her mouth to mouth, her, her eyes open. She looks at me. First thing she does is whack. She slaps me across the face. She was she had too much to drink that night. <laughs> she must have been smoking, dropped the butt on the couch and went to bed. So she slapped me across the face. Um, let me think. Uh, another, uh, I'm in uh, when I another time I'm in 39. We get a job. Oh, this is an interesting one. I'm in 39. We get a job around Christmas time. High-rise, multiple dwelling, fireproof. First two. We go in. Uh, High-rise, fireproof, multiple dwelling in, office building fires are the toughest fires you can have. 
you, you can't make the hallway without a mask. So we go down, we go down, we go down in the apartment, we knock the fire out. We have, uh, it's Christmas time, we have two DOAs, a mother and a child. Uh, you know, very sad, very terrible. And um, the husband was away on a business trip, a very, very good and successful businessman, very wealthy. He said, he came up to the firehouse, we were, we were chatting, and he said, I don't, I don't want to see this ever happen to another father. So he put a group together, and they developed the first commercial retail fire smoke detector as a result of that fire. So I was at the fire where the residential smoke detector came, the first one. It was like this big, and it was like 75 hours. But I, I was at that fire, a very tragic fire. Another fire I had when I was there, we had a job. Um, we were second to engine, another high-rise fireproof. Uh, first engine was in. We were hooking up uh, on two floors below. And I said, let me get up there and get a layout. Lou, I'm going up to get a layout at the lieutenant. So I go up to get a layout of the fire, crawl down a hallway, crawl in the fire apartment to get a layout. Next thing I know, I'm st I'm st it's down to the floor, fire's going. Next thing I know, I see a naked man. So I said, oh, shit, I got one. Now, he was completely naked, but he was, if you ever pull somebody out of a fire, they're, they're very sweaty. Yeah. So I start dragging him out, and the guy from the truck says, okay, I'll help you. So we get out in the hall, the hall's charged. It's an L-shaped hall. So at the end of the hall, it makes a right turn, and then you go left to the hallway. So I got him. I'm carrying the front part, the head, and he's got the back part. And I can't see where I'm going. I ram his head into the wall. Sorry. He's unconscious. We make the turn. We get him to the stairs, and, I, and he's slimy. So I dropped him. He rolls down the stairs to the floor below. Now, this guy's a, a man. So I immediately started chest compressions. I wasn't going to give the man mouth to mouth. So I beat the other guy to it. So he's giving him mouth to mouth. <laughs> we bring the guy back, save his life. Transport him to the hospital and everything. Nice job. Nice job. Uh, um, they, they, the, 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 the other truck company officer calls the guy up. He said, we want to put our guy in for a rescue. What do you think? I said, my lieutenant says, well, my guy found him. Hey, Joe, uh, they want to put uh, the guy in for uh, a rescue. I said, well, it's going to be hard to explain how the second new engine found the body. So I don't think we should do that. <laughs> so anyway, about three o'clock in the morning, the marshals, fire marshals come to quarters. And they go, well, who's the guy, uh, the guy that found the guy? I says, that's me. He said, we're going to make everything suspicious. I said, why? Well, that guy was all full of bruises. He had a, he had a big lump on his head. and had bruises all over his body. We think he was beat up and they set a fire. I said, <laughs> wait a minute. No, let me explain this to you. I rammed his head into the wall. We ran, and we, we rolled him down the stairs. Not suspicious. Uh, so, so I'm, you know, it was, it was nice. I came from the, the culture up there. Is that, that, that was your job. I had an old German captain in 16 truck, and we pulled plenty of people out, and that was your job. And uh, battles were not part of the job back then, you know. 
Well, years later, everybody got rid of Prim Metal, you know. But anyway, 16 and 39, great house, 36 engine, great house. Now I'm going to John Jay. I'm going to Hunter College. And uh, I had the um, the layoffs. I went through the layoffs. I went through the freeze, the hiring freeze, where the, nobody got promoted for a few years. I was on the bad end of that. And the layoffs was a terrible thing. And I believe the layoffs were in 1975, where they laid off 2,000 firemen. And then uh, a lot of them got jobs as bus drivers. Both days were very terrible. The day of the strike and the day of the layoffs. They were, They really... The dissension in the fire department was terrible that day. And, it, and there was a lot of uh, in-house fighting and everything. You know? And I'm sad that, that we had to go to a layoff. I felt sorry for the guys. And I felt sorry for the, you know, the um, that whole scene with the layoffs and the strikes. It was just terrible times in the fire department. And it was busy as hell. And, and, and Hagen was cutting companies. 1974, 75, he cut a lot of units. And and we were just, the, the fire duty was through the roof. So anyway, at 19, I studied for lieutenant. And uh, I didn't, I studied like I studied for tests in college, like the night before the test, which is not the way to study for civil service. There's so many things you have to know in civil service. You have to do, you have to read it a thousand times to recall it. In college, you studied whatever, and then you put the book away. I went to Delahanty's, which was a fireman school, and they gave us homework. I did the homework, and I put it away, and that was it. Okay, so I passed the test, but I didn't write a great mark, and I was in the freeze. So then I get promoted. I was lucky enough to get promoted, and I went up to the South Bronx, and uh, the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm working in these, these countries. Now, this was 76, so the war started, the, the, the really busy times really started around 66, 67, uh, where the exodus began. I worked with guys, and I was in probate school, with guys that lived in the South Bronx. But then the exodus started. So that's when the, it, it went nuts. And all these companies were great companies. I worked a lot in 94 and 48, which was second due to 82 and 31. Dennis Smith wrote the book in 1972 that put FDNY on the map, report from engine company 82. Now I'm working with these guys in the book. These, these were like legend, these guys. And I got the privilege to work with them. And, the, the, you know, it was like, and I work with legendary guys. You walk in the door in 80, you know, in the, it's funny because you, when you're recovering officers, they don't know you, but you walk in and the first thing they go is, hey, Lieutenant, how are you? Where'd you work? You know, they want to know your pedigree. And you have to tell them. And if you worked in a, a really busy company, okay, you're okay. If you worked in a slow company, oh, we get this guy. Let's keep an eye on this guy. Uh, if you worked in the, an engine, slow company engine, they really got to keep an eye on your or, so you had to prove yourself at every fight. So we go out the door and we didn't, I didn't wear a mask in those days. I looked to the left and I looked to the right. The Irons team was not wearing a mask. I wasn't wearing a mask. So we'd go to a fire, do a good job. I went in as far as they went, came back to quarters, go in the bathroom, throw up, have a headache. 
An hour later, go out the door again, have another job, come back, throw up, and have a headache. <laughs> but, you know, you wanted to be as tough, if not tougher than them. Now, you could go to 20 fires with them and prove yourself. Okay. But at the 21st fire, for some reason, you, you made a wrong turn or something. Now you're, now you're a piece of crap. Oh, this guy's a piece of crap. He went the wrong way. You, you know, build a build. Build a thousand bridges. You, you're the great bridge builder. You build one that fell down, you stink. So the fire service, you're only as good as your last job. So I got the, you know, I proved myself up there. I work with legendary guys. I work with a, a Captain Bob Farrell in 31 truck, who was, his nickname was God with a little G. Uh, one of the most knowledgeable firefighters in the world. In the, in the city, winner of the highest award in the city, the Gordon Bennett Medal. He was a lieutenant in 31 truck and a captain. Uh, he wrote the book on him and John O'Regan and some other guys. They wrote the book on Cowalot operations, roof operations, the saw bulletin. We didn't have saws. They finally got, only the rescues had saws. Then when the truck companies got saws, he wrote the bulletin. Uh, he wrote the he, they wrote all the bullets on, on the tactics. John O'Regan and those guys wrote the all our training bulletins because they were going to fires, and and they were they were learning and they wrote it down. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. Um, there was a, a John Bob uh, Farrell and Louis Andre. They were known as Batman and Robin up there. They were two tremendous officers, and. Um, I'll tell you the story how they got their nicknames, Batman and Robin. They'd go, you know, they'd be going to fires and fires and fires, and then they'd, they'd be out and they'd hear a job coming in. And they say, that sounds like it's going to go a second. Let's sneak over there. And uh, I think it was Chief, was it Kelsey? It was an Irish Chief, Kelly, Kelsey, one of those guys, a really great guy. He would, they would sneak up behind them and be standing there. And when, when he was getting ready to transmit the second, he'd tell the aide, transmit the second. Now, Farrell would top, tap him on the and says, we're here. And he'd turn around and see Andre and Farrell standing. He said, where did you guys come from, the Batcave? <laughs> so that's how they got the nickname Batman and Robin. Two tremendous fire officers. So I got that. I had the honor to uh, Lieutenant Tom Simmons, another legendary guy in 82. I think he blew out his, his knee, his meniscus. So I got the pleasure to do his uh, long term medical leave in 82 and had the honor to work with all these guys. And uh, it was uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. I uh, you had to, actually you had to know somebody to get into one of those companies, believe it or not especially a truck company. You didn't get a truck company. There was three engines for every two trucks. Well, there was a, we had 250 engines, 125 trucks, twice as many engines as trucks. So uh, you had to know somebody. You, have had, you had to have weight. And I didn't know anybody. So I wound up in an in engine company, 38. Great country, great company, great guys. Uh, they're in the top 25 today. One of my probies was a guy named Jack McGee. Do you remember the uh, Rescue Me Dennis Leary series? I do, yes. Rescue Me. Remember the chief? Yes. The chief, that was Jack McGee. He was my probie in 38 Engine. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 
he was a fireman 10 years. He decided he wanted to be an actor. I said, what are you, nuts? So Jack McGee was my probie. So it was, um, I spent some time up there, studied for captain again, like uh, not the greatest studier, but I got promoted. I got promoted to captain. I said, oh, I hope I go to Brooklyn. I've been to Manhattan. I've been to the Bronx. I want to go to Brooklyn. Where do they send me? First division in Manhattan. One of the, the first division is lower Manhattan. The third division is midtown Manhattan. Of all the places I ever worked in the fire department, the most difficult areas to work in are the first and third divisions. The most difficult fires. They don't have a lot of fires, but they have difficult fires. The structures are all different. You have the office building fires are horrible. Uh, Subcellars. I had the, uh, let's say, the World Trade Center. I had the Marriott when the Marriott was being first occupied. That was the hotel, the hotel between the trade centers. The South Tower did collapse into the Marriott and killed a lot of firemen that were in the Marriott on 9-11. I had a job in that. I was in five truck. No, I was in five truck. I forget what truck I was in. But anyway, I get up uh, one of the upper floors, say the eighth, 10th floor, and we get a, a whole we had a room with about 20 mattresses stored in the going. It's going merrily. We stretched the house line, but they hadn't charged the stamp pipe yet. They had to run a line across West Street, charge the stamp pipe. They hadn't done that yet. So we, I, we stretched the house line, start water, and the water's like, I have my thumb on the end of the house line, and I'm operating in this room that's fully engulfed. She says, how you doing up there? I said, well, if you charge the standpipe, we'll put the fire out. So uh, I'm in the room and the, the room, the windows let go in the room. The room lights out, lights up. So we bail out, we roll out. We roll out of the room. They get, finally, they get water in the uh, standpipe. We go and put the fire out. That was the one fire I had in the trade center. Um, had a, a lot of interesting fires. And like I had a fire in a, in a loft one day. And Manhattan's nuts. They have basements, cellars, and subcellars in these old lofts. And they're, it's like a six-story, five-story loft full of smoke. And the trucks are searching. And I remember reading an article about loft fires. While I was standing by, we were first to engine. I had my guy stretched to the front door. And I took, I went down to the basement and I went down, was charged. Then I went down to the cell, it was charged. Then I went down to the sub cell, it was roaring merrily. All right, 33, bring our line. Chief, we got to fire down the sub cell. We put it out. But the, the, the construction down there was, was very difficult, very hard fires. Had fired the office building, two, two and a half inch lines. And we could barely make it down the hallway with two, two and a halfs. We, you know, we went foot by foot by foot. Finally, we get down here, fires out. Deputy comes up and says, great job, guys. You put the fire out. Chief, look around. There's nothing but ashes in here. We didn't put the fire out. It burnt itself out. You know, office building fires were very difficult and very difficult place to work. But I enjoyed my stay down there. Very interesting area. Um. That's when Alphabet City was burning. 
you know. And also, that's when Soho, all our garment industry was going overseas. So all the lofts were going vacant then. And you could have bought a loft for $250,000. Now you can't buy a floor for less than $2.5 million. Imagine if we would have known. Be wealthy men so now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, did 33 and 9. It was, uh, I love being a captain down there. Met some really great people. Um, let's see, interesting fires down there. I, I remember I had a fire in it. I was covering, uh, I met Steve Buscemi. You know Steve Buscemi? Yeah, I'm still working on trying to get him on the show. I mean, his story in the fire service guy. is legendary. He was in the, he, he was in 55 Engine. I worked some tours with him. He told me he was going to be an actor. He wanted to be an actor. And I looked at him and he, he sure didn't like, look like Tony Curtis. <laughs> I said, interesting. You want to be an actor? He says, yeah. So uh, we have this job. I'm in 55 Engine, his company. We, we turn a corner, it's blowing out one window. In, one, in those days, we had a signal called 1030, which means you have a working fire. They no longer have that signal. They have a signal called 1075 now, which is you have a working fire and you want four engines, two trucks, and the rescue. Those days, 1030 just means you have a working fire. That fires out one window. We stretch up, put the fire out. Battalion chief, uh, how you doing up there, Cap? I said, fires out, chief. Fires under control. They pull the ceilings. We got it. He says, okay, come on down. I want to talk to you. Oh, go downstairs. Chief Eberlein, great guy, Lenny Eberlein. I didn't know him at the time. He said, uh, Cap, I want to talk to you. Said, oh, what's up, Chief? He says, how come you only transmitted a 1030 and you're not a 1075? I said, well, Chief, I looked up and fire was out one window. One window to me means it's only in one room. One room requires one line. I go up my one line and I put the fire out. I'm getting two engines on the box. So if we need the second engine, we got the line. We don't need three engines, two trucks, the rescue, the all hands. We didn't need all that for that. It's a good answer. I like that. So that's how I met my friend Lenny Eberlein. You know, but I, I enjoy, I enjoy I have 33 and nine great companies, uh, 33 engine. Uh, unfortunately, they were. Um, they were killed on, on, on 9-11, that the company, a lot, uh, Jimmy Boyle and, Lieutenant, and, and Pfeiffer, Lieutenant Pfeiffer, who was the chief in charge, the first chief on the scene, Chief Pfeiffer, that was his brother. He, 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 Pfeiffer, they were in the North Tower, and his brother, 33 Engine, my old company, went in, and he told his brother to go up above, and that was the end of his brother, 33 and 9, great house. Uh, yeah, there's a famous painting of a fellow named Leon Pollinger sitting on Housewatch. It's a famous painting with a cup of coffee and a cigarette. You ever see that painting? No, I haven't seen that one, no. That's a great one. That's a, I think they call it the Housewatch or something. And Leon was a, another great fireman. All right, 33 and 9. Um, great place to work. Um, second due to Alphabet City. First two over at NYU, uh, 
very gentrified now, very beautiful. You can't touch the area. I uh, get lucky enough to, when I'm there, I'm, I meet a, a fellow named Anthony Fusco who asked me to join his study club. I said, yeah, I'd like to join your study club. All right, this is your assignment. You read this, this, and this. And we had four guys. And everybody had this assignment. And we'd meet once a week. And then he said, tell me how you're studying. I said, well, I do the assignment. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not how you study for civil service. He says, you have to read everything printed, every manual printed once a month. I said, everything? He said, everything. The best I could do is get it down to 35 days. But I would now, he taught me how to study for civil service. You just don't do the homework. You study five hours a day. You study seven days a week. And that, and then we were going to Delahanty's and we would take tests and it became very competitive. Who would write the highest mark on the test? So I didn't think I could do it. But being motivated by Tony Fusco, I studied for 23 months, five hours a day. So that's the way to study for civil service. And Tony wrote like a friggin' 98. And I wrote a, I believe I wrote a 92 on the test. I, but anyway, it was one of the highest marks on the test. So uh, as a result, when the list came out, I was like, I think I was fifth. Uh, I wrote number two or three, and I, but didn't they, I had no seniority. So I think I was number 15, something like that. The day the battalion chief's list came out, the first day I got promoted, a group of us. So I said, oh, man, where am I going to go? Let's see, I went from Manhattan to the Bronx, Bronx, Manhattan. I hope I go to Brooklyn. Luckily, I went to Brooklyn. And uh, I was luckily I was assigned to the 11th Division, which is a busy division. Now, I never went to officer training school as a lieutenant, never went to officer training school as a captain. And one day I'm a captain, next day I'm a battalion chief. Never went to training. Today, every time you get promoted, you go to officer school, which is great at every rank. I never had one formal day of training. I did all my training was on the job training. So luckily, my first tours, I went to the 4-4 Battalion in Brownsville, which was the busiest battalion in Brooklyn at the time. And I, the men, I didn't have to tell the men what to do. They knew what to do. So I, my job was to keep them safe, make sure they were safe, and get them more help if they needed more help. And to observe. And if I saw something, say something. So I went to a lot of fires. And every time I came back from the fire, I would, I kept a notebook and I wrote down what went good, what could have gone better, what I should have done. So I was learning on the job experience. And I went from the 4-4 over to the 3-4, where I, I met some stars that were FDNY stars that were legends, guys like Dennis Cross, Eddie Garrity, and a lot of those guys. And I learned some more over there. 
And then uh, I did a medical, a long-time medical leave there. And then the chief passed away. So they filled that spot. I went from that spot to the 5-7 battalion, which is in Bedford-Stuyvesant, very busy battalion. And I had a lot of fire duty there. Worked with the best guys ever. 111 truck, 230 engine, 235 engine, all these great companies. And I had uh, a number of interesting fires. I had a fire on Bedford and Atlantic and a taxpayer once. Um, we went out the door. I could smell it. I knew we had a job. And there was a taxpayer going on Atlantic Avenue. It was a very long taxpayer. Exposure to was a five-story tenement, vacant above, rug store on the first floor. Exposure four with three two-story buildings that the taxpayer ran around. I transmitted second as soon as I got there. We were operating. It was a tea store. So it went down and went around behind the other stores. So we were operating towel ladders, cutting the roof. We couldn't put the fire out because it was spreading behind our lines. It went through 16 inches of brick nogging into the exposure. The, the staff chief came in. Um, who was a very nervous staff chief. He had a nickname. His nickname was Skippy. <laughs> I don't know why they call him Skippy. I hate to be derogatory, but I think somebody said he skipped around doing a lot of work. So that's why they call him Skippy. So uh, Skippy's very nervous. He doesn't want to tr transmit the fourth because on the fourth, the cheaper operations would come in and no no chief wants another higher chief to come in. The fifth, the chief of the department to come in. So, uh, blah, 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 we're operating. And next thing you know, it blows out of the exposure too because it had gone through 16 inches of brick. So he's there. Oh, my God. Transmit the fourth. And he runs down the block and he says, you're in charge of the roof. Get up on the roof. So I went up on a roof. Then I got the guys from the squad and the restroom. We cut a trench. We got bent tips and everything. We stopped the fire at the trench. We saved the tenements. But anyway, it went to a fifth alarm. Very difficult, interesting fire. They used my, that fire, you, you go back and I, I write the fire report. So I wrote the whole fire report. They liked it so much. On the next battalion chief's exam, for the essay for a fire, they used my fire report for the essay on a fire which is pretty cool, I think. That's very cool. I had a lot of fires in the 5-7, met a lot of great guys and everything. And I just was promoted a short time. Everything in life is timing, right? Like when I was the captain a short time, I took the battalion chief's test. Now I'm battalion chief a short time, like very short time. Um, and I, the deputy's test comes out. So I had just, so I said, well, Tony Fusco and I said, let's study for deputy. So we studied for like eight months, but I had remembered so much from being the battalion chief. I passed the deputy's test. Only 17 guys passed the test, 17. So they make a few changes to get the list up to 29. So luckily I've been to as a battalion chief, I was in all these busy battalions and I, I really learned a lot. And I had, a, especially I went from the five, seven to the two, eight, which is in Bushwick. 
and we had row frames in the 2A. And that's multiple alarm country. A lot of brownstones in the 5-7, one alarm fires. The 2-8, second alarm's on arrival. Not only in the building, but it went into both exposures. So a lot of times the block would burn down or it would burn down to the vacant lot where we used to have a building. So I had a lot of multiple alarm exposure in the 2-8. And uh, so I handled them. I could handle a lot of multiple alarms. Met a lot of great firefighters, legendary firefighters there. My lieutenant was Pete Gancy. In my truck company in the quarters with me was Pete Gancy, who became chief of department, Pete Gancy, who was killed on 9-11. Dennis Cross, killed on 9-11, became a deputy. George Eisen became a battalion chief, died of 9-11 cancer. Uh, Jimmy Ellison formed the squads, died of 9-11 cancer. I had all these magnificent stars I worked with that made me look good. And uh, so I wasn't uh, afraid of uh, going to fire. I wanted to go to fires. I got made deputy because I remembered so much from being a battalion chief. I get assigned to operations. Uh, in a desk job, yeah. They started something called Projects and Planning. Brand new deputies were assigned for three months to operations to learn what goes on in headquarters. And he worked directly for the Chief of Operations. Chief of Operations was a chief named Homer Bishop. I don't know if you recognize that name. I don't. One of the most, one of the most famous chiefs in FBNY. Very tough piece of work. Never smiled. Made all the tough decisions in FDNY. Uh, wasn't popular because he made all the tough decisions. He eliminated the units. He cut units. And he was never smiled. He was a tough guy. Lifted, transferred guys on a heartbeat. Um, myself and a chief named Kenny Serretta were the first planning and project officers. Kenny Serta went on to become an assistant chief. He worked in the 7th Division. Kenny had the Happy Land Fire. You know about the Happy Land Fire, right? No, sir. It doesn't, doesn't ring a bell either. Right, the Happy Land Fire was a social club fire. He had 78 DOAs. 78 DOAs. Is that the one where they threw gas at the entrance? Yes. Okay, so I am familiar with it, yeah. 78 DOAs. That, I, I was in the 6th Division. He was in the 7th. That was two blocks out of my area, thank God. 78 DOAs, imagine that. Well, Kenny and I were the first planning and project officers up there. And Homer was a tough piece of work. Nobody, he never smiled, always broke chops. So I, I was always kidding around. I always liked to have fun and work, enjoy myself, and get the job done. It's a funny story. So I told this story on a, to another bunch of group of guys. One day I was in a, a bookstore, and they had this big, tall chimpanzee. I forget what he was selling. Cardboard cutout. It was like six feet high. So I asked the guy, can I have that? I said, what do you want it for? I said, God, give it to me. I want to bring it into the fire department. So he gave me the chimpanzee cutout. So Homer used to come to work in the morning. He'd get in around 8.30. He would walk in, straight in, never said hello to anybody with a frown on his face. Go into his secretary's desk, get his key, open his office door. He came in in a suit. Open a sliding closet door, change into his uniform. So one day I said, I'm going to do something. 
So I brought the chimpanzee in. <laughs> I went into the secretary's desk, opened, went into his office, opened the sliding door, and I dressed the chimpanzee in his uniform with a white shirt on with the four stars and the jacket. So the first thing he's going to see when he opens, slides his door is a chimpanzee. Everybody said, you're nuts. You're crazy. He's going to transfer you to Staten Island. I said, no, he's not. No, he's not. We're going to get a smile out of him. He never smiles. So he comes into the morning. Everybody's like peeking around the corner. He opens the door. He goes in his office. We're trying to see it. We, and we hear him call out. I think his secretary was Ethel or some Elizabeth. He said, Elizabeth, yes, chief, get D. Bernardo in here. He knew right away it was me. So I go in, what can I do for you, chief? He said, don't you have anything better to do up here than this? I said, well, chief, I thought you could use a smile because you're always under so much pressure. He says, get out of my office. But I could swear on the way out of the office, I saw him smile. Might be the only time he ever smiled. So, uh, so where do they send me? They send me, after the three months, they send me out to Queens, to the 13th Division. At that time, Queens had two divisions, 13th and the 14th, and they, were, they really weren't doing any work out there. I'm doing another medical leave out there for a chief thing, James Joyce. So, I'm going through a few fires, but it's mostly private dwellings, okay? And uh, like I'm really not doing anything. It's not, a, it's not a deputy's job, private dwellings. I didn't do much work out there. So Chief Joyce passed away and the borough commander um, asked me to stay. I said, look, I'm a young guy. I didn't study to not go to fires. I, I want to go to fires. So I'm, I, I don't want to stay. I, I, I thank you for offering me the spot, but I'm going to, I would like to go to a busier place. At that time, there was a, the borough commander of the Bronx was a chief that was very stern, very not well liked, always fighting with his chiefs, strict disciplinarian, not well liked. Nobody wanted to go there. So um, a chief uh, in the 6th Division um, was getting transferred out for a certain reason or he was wanted to go, just wanted to change. There was an opening. So I said, I want to go to the Bronx. So they said, what do you want to go to the Bronx for? You're going to have to pay a toll. You're going to add a, a half an hour to your travel time and pay a toll. And, you know, it's, it's very busy. I said, yes, that's why I want to go to the Bronx. You pay to go to the movies? I'll, I'll pay a toll to go to the Bronx. So, and nobody wants a place. So I put in for the sixth division. I got it immediately. Best thing I ever did in my life. I went to, uh, uh, the division was located on 167th and Washington Avenue, 50 and 19, 50 engine, 19 truck. Greatest bunch of guys, guys in the world. Crazy guys. Best fireman ever. And I just loved it there. I was going to three, four, five fires a tour. Uh, and it was just, it was like I died and went to heaven. It was the best time of my life. The best fireman, not the best fireman of all of the city, but 
just the sense of humor. We kidded around. We had a great, just the, the greatest time of my life. Um, I could tell you a million funny stories. Uh, it just, I just loved it up there. The, the guys were great. They took care of me. I took care of them. Um, I, uh, I went to so many fires up there. met so many characters up there. Then um, I'm trying to, you know, I went to a gazillion fires and luckily nobody got hurt. Now I, I went to, uh, you know, I'd be in a, a, a fire, or walk down the driveway, come out of the driveway, the side alley and the building would collapse. Or, or we were in a room, I'd go up in a, a big H. I come on out, guys, take a blow. We're all right. Come on out, take a blow. The floor, the floor collapsed. Or we would go up, come go up to the roof, check things out, come down the stairs, the stairs collapsed. It was all, I was so lucky. So lucky. And I always say this. The guy said, You were good. I said, No, I wasn't good. I was lucky. And it's better to be lucky and good. Better be lucky than good. I had a fire on. Nelson Avenue in the Bronx. And uh, exposure to was a lot, which was filled with rubble. So I couldn't get the town ladder. And when I turned, it was three o'clock in the morning. I turned out from quarters. It was about 15 blocks away to fly. I could see it in the sky. 15 blocks away. I, I, I called the Bronx, Sixth Division to the Bronx. Make sure I have at least two town ladders on this box. I said, what's your location? I says, I'm on the apron, but I could see it from here. On the way there, I see embers coming down, size of softball. I said, on the way there, I said, special call to engine companies for ember patrol. Because uh, I get there, and the guys are making an aggressive attack. And I want to put 44 truck in exposure, too. But there's rubble there. They can't get in. All right. So it, it looks kind of hairy, so I'm starting to back the guys out, starting to back. Fine, you guys got to come out. There's too much fight. There's too much fight. Back out. Let's just towel out of this. And with that, a guy in Rescue 3 who's in the rear says, hey, Chief, I see a crack developing in the building. So I said, okay, urgent, urgent, everybody out. Everybody out. Within 60 seconds, the entire building collapsed into the lot where I was going to put 40-foot truck. It was just a matter of luck. That fire makes the cover of Firehouse magazine. You should see that. Wait, I have the picture. Imagine it. Now, they had a bunch of wires coming through the lot. Cable wires, electric wires, everything else. It was about six, eight inches in diameter. They were all grouped. They were running through the lot to a telephone pole in the street where we had the command post. The building hit that wire. It didn't break the wire, but the shock transmitted to the telephone pole. The telephone pole snapped in half and spun like a propeller. Imagine that. It was about eight feet away from us where we had the command post. We all turned white, looked at each other because we, I don't know, none of us were killed. It was a miracle. So we had two miracles at that farm. I didn't put 40-foot truck in the exposure. And when the telephone pole didn't kill, kill any of us, I had so many big fires up there. 
We had a fire in Shakespeare Avenue. Shakespeare Avenue was a tough block. They had just, they, they had a, 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 a rookie cop sitting in the car on Shakespeare, 167 in Shakespeare. He was sitting on a building that they were, they were monitoring. Some guy came up, blew his head away one night. It was a tough street. Most of it was vacant. One summer day, I get Shakespeare 167. We have, uh, it started in the, we have like five buildings. It started in the middle, middle building and went left and right to two other buildings. And then there were two on the end. There was five buildings. It was about 98 degrees. I, I get in there. It's a hot summer day. The second alarm on arrival. Uh, I got a towel ladder working on the fire building. I got the second alarm going into exposure two. The third alarm goes into exposure three. I transmit the third. It's 98 degrees. Now it gets into the fourth building and the fifth building in a cockwalk. The whole block's on fire. So I'm standing there with my aide, Big Sal. Then Sal smoked. We all smoke cigars. Sal's got this big stogie. We're standing there in front of the, at the command post. And he's standing there with the smoking other Exposure 4B was occupied. So, but they're taking the, they're, they're pulling ceilings on the top floor. They're taking the glass. They take the glass and a shard comes shooting out. And Sal's standing like this. And it cuts his cigar right in half. <laughs> if it was six inches this way, it would have been killed. He looks at me. I look at him. I said, I think we got to back up. But, you know, that was just... One of a gazillion fires. Oh, man. We had this place on River Avenue called the Bronx Terminal Market. <clears throat> All the produce for the Bronx came in there. It, it no longer does. It goes, it goes at the Hunts Point in the market. All the produce for the city of New York comes into the, the Hunts Market. It used to come into the Fulton Fish Market, and that's gone. That's up there in the Hunts Terminal Market now. So anyway, it used to be on River Street. The block, the the, the building was a thousand feet long and it had a hundred occupancies in it, all produce. It had 15 foot cement roof, 15 foot ceilings. Two it was two stories, very small second floor with bins of, you know, you had bins of corn and uh, straw hats and everything in the world that you can think of. Used to go to fires every week. It, 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 some of the fires were so bad when we turned the corner on River Avenue, you couldn't see where you were going. I had to get out in front of the chief's car and walk in front of the chief's car to guide, to guide the, the driver there. And uh, we had fires in that and all the time. And that's where I experimented with the positive pressure ventilation. Because they used to use the fans, they would hang them to suck the smoke out of the buildings. Then we decided to go with blowing the smoke, blowing the air into the buildings. And it worked tremendously. Um, I had a job in the market one day and I, I special called the high-ex foam unit because they had a giant fan for the high-ex foam. They get there, I said, put the fan on. I tell everybody back out, let's put this on to pressurize the building because we, we couldn't see where it was burning. It was down to the floor within... 60 seconds, 
it you could see you could see we could find where it was burning and we could put the fire out. It's amazing. Another thing we used to use in the high rise projects, we'd have uh, we experimented with positive pressure. I would have them open the lobby door, open the stairwell door, and the roof door, and I'd have them put fans in the lobby door and put fans in the stairwell door, and the stairwells would clear up immediately. And, and then if you open the fire attack floor door, it actually would clear the fire floor. So we experimented with all that stuff. And it worked. Because sucking the, fan, the smoke out, that never worked. That, that was no good. Um, let's see. I, had, I, you know, I just had a gazelle. I had that coffin factory that was on the cover of, of Firehouse Magazine. I had that numerous times. And it was nothing like saying to the guy, fire out 78 windows. (laughs) Fire out 78 windows. And it was old mill construction. You couldn't burn it down. They made it into condominiums. Also, when I went up there, they still had a few breweries left that were vacant. We had fires in the old brewery. You couldn't burn them down. They were old mill construction. Sheffield Milk Farms up there was a block long. A city block long had 50 fires in it. Old mill construction. You couldn't burn it down. Then in the 1990s, they started to, the construction up there started to go into this lightweight truss stuff. Very dangerous, very scary stuff. And uh, firemen killers, because they collapsed like that. They used that press board glue, gusset plate construction. Very dangerous. We wrote a bulletin in Sixth Division, a bulletin about them, and we didn't want anybody going on the roof, et cetera. And our bulletin was so good, the Jersey City Fire Department used it as a training bulletin. So the guys up there were great. They were smart. Um, you know, they uh, best firemen in the world, just like the ones in Brooklyn and Manhattan and all over. All, all firemen are great. You could take a fireman, put him in the slow company, if you put him in a busy company, he'd be a great fireman. He's a great fireman in a slow company. It's just the, the luck of the draw where you get assigned. That's all. I've, I met very few firemen that were poor firemen. And I met a few poor company officers and chiefs. Not everybody, just because you have FDN wire doesn't mean you're, you're good or great. You know. But I'd say 95% of them were good and great. And it's just a matter of fact of where you're assigned and, and who trains you. Okay. And I and when I, I used to start taking I when I made captain, I started taking my son to the firehouse because it was my firehouse. So I started taking my kid in. And uh then when I made battalion chief, he was riding with me on the weekend and all those busy battalions. And I would bring him in, have him pull ceilings in the smoke, and he'd be like, <laughs> so eyes would be watering. And he developed his love for the fire service. He knew he wanted to become a fireman. And uh, his first job was a fire alarm dispatcher on Long Island. Then he became a New York City fire alarm dispatcher in the Bronx. So we'd be working together. And I'd call him up and say, Joey, get me special call to that box. Or I knew all the fire alarm dispatchers in Manhattan and the Bronx. And I made it a point to always bring them cake or something. Because if I needed a favor, they would take care of me. 
you know, some chiefs got on the wrong side of the dispatch and you don't want to be on the wrong side of the dispatch because, you know, I used to like, uh, if it sounded interesting, I would call a dispatcher up. There was a dispatcher in Manhattan named Herbie Iser. He was like the number one dispatcher. There was a dispatcher in Brooklyn called Warren Fuchs. They called him the voice of Brooklyn Fire Radio. Another great dispatcher. There were dispatchers in the Bronx. Uh, Joey Potts and Pans and Doc O'Connell and uh, those guys. And I knew all those guys. So something interesting came in, like there was a gas explosion in Manhattan. The whole side of a project blew off. So oh, that sounds interesting. So I call up uh, Manhattan. Herbie, special call another deputy to that box, me. And he would do that. So I would go over there and observe and I, I learned different things, you know. So it's good to be nice to the dispatchers. So Joey would come to, with me, and then he actually eventually became a, a the Bronx dispatcher. And uh, Joey, see, you know, call me to this box, and he would call me to the box. And, and then in 1995, he 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 got his lifelong dream. He got appointed to the fire service. He was appointed to. Um, he was lucky enough to be pointed to a 56 truck, which is a very busy truck company. In those days, the, they rotated the probies uh, around three different units because they wanted them to work in three different areas. They wanted them to work in engines and trucks, but they don't want to do that. So he went to 56 truck, and then he went to 47 engine in Harlem, and we got a unit citation in 47 on and a great company, 47 seven engine. And then he went out to uh, Queens. I forget the number of the company. It was on McGinnis Boulevard in Queens, an engine company. At that time, Bill Feehan, you know Bill Feehan, right? Um, I don't know. Bill Feehan was the first deputy fire commissioner. That was killed on 9-11, held every rank in the fire department, and they made a movie about him. It's called The Chief. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Bill Feeney. He was fire commissioner, killed, first deputy fire commissioner, killed on 9-11. Great guy. Um, Bill Feeney and those guys decided that they were going to bring the squads back, but they were going to make them like mini rescues. The old squads were just manpower companies. Now they wanted to make the new squads. They first called them enhanced engines. But they, they were like, they got received the same training as the rescue companies. So they received all the special ops training, all the rescue disciplines. So when you, if you had a working fire, you got four engines, two trucks, the rescue and the squad. It's like having another rescue there. And they were backups for the rescue. So they were forming the squads. How do we man the squads? Well, first of all, you've got to get guys that have the technical special ops knowledge. Now, my son luckily had attended FDIC. You know what FDIC is, right? I do, yes. Fire Engineering and Firehouse Magazine. They have their symposiums every year. And you can go out there and, and get all the training in the world, you know, um, all the special ops training, collapse training, 
uh, tunnel training, trench training, hazmat training. The only thing you can't get out there is swift water. So my son used to go and he got all the training. He had received the training on his own through his uh, volunteer flight department on Long Island. And he knew everything about ropes. We used to drill at Stony Brook University Hospital where they would give us the elevator shaft and we'd be rappelling down the elevator shaft in Stony Brook Hospital. And uh, then we'd get the, the power company to dig us a trench at the firehouse and we would do a trench rescue at the firehouse. He had all the rescue disciplines except swift water. So when they were forming, Eddie Garrity came to me. Eddie Garrity, who was another famous chief, also died on 9-11. He said, Joe, you think your son would like to come to the squad? We're forming the squads and we need knowledgeable people in them to help teach them. I said, well, I, uh, you ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. But I think he'd like that. So he didn't finish his rotation. Eddie Garrity approached him and he said, yeah, I'd love to go to the squad. So he went up to squad 61 in the Bronx and he was a charter member of, or a plank member of squad 61. He, and he helped form that company. He knew all the disciplines already. That's 90, that's 19. I believe that was 98 when they formed, reformed the squads. Okay. Now, um, I used to go with him to Indiana, Indianapolis, and Baltimore, and I would take all that training also. Uh, sometimes I was act, act as the safety officer down there. Anyway, so they formed the squads. He's in squad 61. 2000 comes, and Captain Ralph Tiso, ha Captain of Rescue, highly decorated, well-respected captain, calls me up one day. He says, you think your son would like to come to the rescue? I said, uh, listen, don't ask me. Uh, I don't want anything to do with it because they have a saying in the job. You know, they have a say, saying in the job. You ask, how many years you got on the job? Is it 10 years? Well, how many years you been a fireman? Five, but I was five years a cop. So they call that cop time. Uh, you, no, you got five years in a job and you got five years cop time. And then they have another saying, top time, it's called. Your father's a chief, and it's a Bonton company that's hard to get into. And all of a sudden, Chief Jones's son is assigned there. Ah, you got pop time. Your father got you there. I never wanted to do that. So I told Ralph, I said, listen, that's between you and him. I, I want no part of this. Uh, God forbid my son... I ask you to take my son here and something happens to my son, I would have to live with that the rest of my life. That's between you two. So Ralph calls him up. Would you like to come over to rescue? You know, I only got five years in the job. He said, no, but you have all the special ops right already. You already have that knowledge and you teach at Indianapolis. You'd fit in perfectly. Don't worry about your time. You have the skills. So he said, Dad, what should I do? I said, do whatever you want. So he went over to the rescue with five years, which is, unless you have pop time, it's unheard of. So he went over to rescue, and uh, we'd go to fires together. And I would go Division 6 to uh, 
uh, rescue uh, rescue uh, floor above. What do you got? Because I would talk to the rescue officer and the rescue floor above on different positions. And they would, uh, we got no extension chief. And it was him. So then all of a sudden on the radio, you hear, rescue floor above to daddy. <laughs> radio. Rescue daddy. How you doing, daddy? They break, but he could take it. We'd laugh. And they were just great guys in the rescue. So 9-11 comes. Hold on. I, I was at the 93 bombing, but, but that's another thing. It's another famous fire. Is that. One funny story about the 93 World Trade Center bomb. I go down there and uh, if that would have happened today, it'd still be on fire. It'd, it'd be the 93 bombing, which set off in the garage. Now today I have these electric cars, battery operated, you know, lithium ion. You can't put the fires out. Imagine they had about a hundred and something cars going on the three levels below at the 93 bomb. Kenny Serrano went down there with a bunch of guys. They put those fires out on three different levels. That's what was burning. It was over 100 cars on fire in a confined space. Today, if those lithium cars were under there, they would have never put that fire out. And every car in every parking level would have burnt if it was that fire was today. But anyway, I got down here, and I, the chief of the department was Fusco, the guy who studied. He said, Tony, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to do the secondary search of, I think it was the South Tower. I'm not sure. I said, okay, give me, uh, give me six truck companies, so I, uh, and I'll do the secondary search. He said, coordinate it with the police. So... I went over to the commanding police officer. He said, we're going to do the secondary search. He said, okay, what do you want? I said, okay, we've got a 110-story building here. We'll take one to 55. You guys do 55 to 110. He said, okay. I wasn't walking up to 110. <laughs> <laughs> so I start out with six truck companies, and people are still bailing out. Every now and then, a very pretty secretary would be coming down. They'll coughing or, you know, look tired. Uh, so one of the young firemen go, are you okay? Can I help you? Okay, I'll help you. So he helped her down. So I told the guys, I'm going to go. We're going to stop every 10 floors with the secondary search. We'll listen. We'll walk out. We're out. I'm, going to, I'm not going to go up. I'm going to give you guys a break every 10 floors because they're carrying a tool, Scott Mask. And, and, you know, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty, um, a lot of equipment and it's a lot of force. I'm just carrying a light and a radio. Make a long story short. I stopped at the sky lobby on, I think it was, might've been the 50th floor or something. I turn around, there's two guys left. I said, where did the, where did the rest of them go? They said, every time a pretty girl came by, they helped them down. <laughs> So I did the secondary search at the at the 93 bombing. I tell you what, man, that was 55 floors. I can't imagine. I, and, and Oreo Palmer got up to at the at the 9-11. Oreo got up 70 something floors. I don't know how he did it. And I wasn't carrying any tools. And those guys that were carrying the tools, I don't know how they did it. 
you know. And I, I to this thing, my friend Jay Jonas. Have you had Jay Jonas? I have not. No. Well, you got to get him. He was the guy with nine trucks, um, nine truck, thirty nine engines stuck. They're the miracle guys. They the ones that carried the lady down and got stuck. Lived through the. They were. They lived. They were in the hole in the stairwell. Oh yeah, during through, during the collapse. They're the only ones that lived through the collapse. And those two police police officers, you got to get him on the story. He's the story he tells is, it's just a miracle that they that they lived. I need the to. I, I, I had one of the two police officers on the show telling that story, so it'd be interesting okay. to get Jay's perspective as well. Oh, the, the, the building collapsed around them. They they had no idea, and he couldn't. He was talking to them on the radio, and he had no idea what they couldn't understand. Look, I'm in the South Tower. I'm in the B stairway. I'm on the fourth floor. Why can't you find me? He had no idea the buildings came down around me. All right, 9-11, um, my aide called me up. He said, turn on the television. What's going on? He says, playing into the World Trade Center. And turn it on. It's a beautiful, clear day. They'd say, oh, maybe a Piper Cub or something. I said, no, that's, that's a big hole. There's, there's something not right here. There's something that's not, is, is not right. That's a big hole. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Then the second plane hits, right? Now we know what's going on, right? Now, if you were to tell me today the World Trade Center is going to collapse, I would say it'll never happen. Still, I still think it'll never happen, but it happened. Um, my son called me. He said, what's going on? They were in Brooklyn at a side job with a bunch of guys from Rescue 3. What's going on in Manhattan? What? I said, playing into the World Trade Center. He said, oh, we're leaving the side job. He was with all the guys from Rescue 3. We're heading up to Rescue 3 to get our gear. I said, okay, be careful. I'll see you down here. His whole company was killed that day. Um, so I'm watching this and I said, they're going to need help. So I got a hold Joey had formed the Brookhaven Town Technical Rescue Team. They never had one. He formed it. So I called the dispatcher out where I live in Stony Brook. I said, put it out on, the, on a frequency. I want all the guys from the Brookhaven Town Technical Rescue Team meet me at Station 3. We're going to the fire. So a lot of, we, we got a convoy. We loaded up ambulances with uh, structural lumber. I mean, I'm, what I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking it's going to be a little local collapse or something. So I ran to Home Depot. We went to Home Depot. I loaded up the local three ambulances with the structural, all the structural lifting tools and all that. We made a convoy. We drove into they were having a form. They were forming up in Queens and in Brooklyn. OK, when I got there, the, now the two towers had come down. Seven was burning. I got to the one in, in Brooklyn and uh, they said they're, they're letting nobody over the bridge. And uh, we're, we're going to have a big task force out here. I said, OK, I'm going over the bridge. The cops were stopping over everybody going over the bridge. I said, I'm going to the thing. He said, go. So we got down there. 
just as seven was coming down. We formed up on West Street. And now they were sort of getting control, control of things. And um, they told us to stand by. And there was a lot of uh, FDNY off-duty guys that they weren't letting into the site. And they were, it was this You wouldn't believe what was going on. But it was like, it was like it was the end of the world. Everything was gray. And the, the dust was this high in the street and on the lampposts, everything. You couldn't breathe. I put a red handkerchief over. We all had handkerchiefs. We put them over our face. You could not breathe. It, it was gray. And it, it, well, I, I think that's, to me, it was like a nuclear explosion. It looked like a, a, a nuclear bomb went off. The de- destruction and devastation. We couldn't even get to where we wanted to go. So we had to go through the financial building, came out the second floor window onto the rubble. And I was looking for rescue three. So I kept asking around the guy. I knew everybody I knew that was there. Hey, chief. I said, uh, where's rescue three? Anybody see rescue three? And they knew they probably knew that rescue three was gone by then. But they didn't know that my son was alive. So they, they, nobody answered my questions. So we fixed around and everything and uh, trying to uh, get organized, just trying to see what was going on. And um, I was on one side of the collapse. Then I went on to the other side. You couldn't get up on the thing. It was it was burning and it, you couldn't climb. up. You had to be a mountain goat. Um, and about three o'clock in the morning, I remember that I was with a, a couple of the big chiefs and they wanted to know what was going on in a certain place that I had just been. And uh, I had the answer for them. And I made a couple of suggestions. And then uh, they said, uh, I said, I have a bunch of uh, tech rescue guys here. I said, no, we can't use them on this. We, we can't use them. However, on the south side of the fire, we're, where um, there were a bunch of other chiefs that I knew. They were putting the volunteers that showed up to work. They were putting them to work. The whole city, would, the whole bottom of the city would have burnt down if it wasn't for them because they, they were putting out hundreds of car fires on the streets and structural fires. The, the water mains were broke. They were drafting from the, the river. They were all going crazy over here. On, up here, they were, they were uh, a little not that a little aggressive. So, and they were holding all the guys from FDNY in reserve over here. One chief, Joe Callen, he's in that video, that 9-11 video in the lobby. When I got there, he was sitting on the side of this, on the sidewalk, covered in gray, eating an apple, staring off into space. He said, Joe. And he was like, yeah, he was in shock. So I got a, I, I got him, I let him, I threw him in an ambulance. He was in shock. So I, anyway, did a lot of stuff moving around and everything. And then there was this clash between, they didn't want these guys, put these guys to work. They wanted to put the city guys to work first. So I told my team, we're on the wrong side of the fire. They're not going to use us. Let's go home. I went home. The next, that was a Tuesday. And the next day, um, we, I called up all my 
uh, all the old deputies that I knew. And we, I said, everybody go to the division of training. Let's have a meeting and see what we can do. So we went out to the division of training and we had a big meeting. And we said, we're going we're gonna to be the official notification guys because the chaplain and the regular guys are all busy doing this. They went on like 24 on, 24 off. We'll do all the dirty work. We'll notify the families. So I formed the uh, family notification unit, which is what told the wife or the mother that the love them was gone, which was a horrible thing. And uh, I split, I took Long Island and I, and then I broke it up into parts. So that's what, that was the first thing I did. And then the, every third day, I went to the pile with the rescue, rescue three and dug for survive, you know, survivors or parts or whatever. Every three days I was digging and I was making notifications. Unfortunately, we weren't finding anybody. It was, I, it was, we were hardly making any notifications at all. You know, I, I'm one of the saddest things I ever did. I remember going knocking on the door and this young widow with, and their three little kids. Oh, it was horrible. The worst thing I think was the hard, one of the hardest things I ever did in my life was notify somebody that their father or their husband was not coming home. I made a number of them and then we weren't finding anybody. We weren't finding anybody. It was just, it was terrible. Down, every three days down there on my hands and knees, digging, digging, hoping to find somebody. Uh, went places you wouldn't believe. I got down in the subway where the building came through the subway. I mean, the stuff I saw, you would, and the things, the, the guys, the things that they did is unbelievable. The places they went, the most dangerous things they did that in normal times you would have never allowed them to do. Oh, I, I can tell you, I don't want to tell you horror stories, but I can tell you horror stories. Man. Where bodies were trapped and to get the body out, you had to cut the body in half. I mean, it was just decapitations, all that stuff. So I went there, went there, went there, went there. Then a lot of feuding started with the, there was a lot of internal strife with the police and firemen. I don't know if you knew about that. Yeah, this is in most, but, most departments that I've yeah, seen at so, least. And they, the fire department really did it stupid because they would, when they find somebody, the first thing they did was call the chaplain and the PD heard that who, who wasn't digging 90% of them weren't thinking they would come to do the carry. And I remember there was an Italian restaurant on Canal Street that was feeding all the first responders. We'd jump in a golf cart and go up there to get something to eat. I would go in there. We were covered with that dust, our hands, our mouths. The policemen were in there dressed like you, nice, no dust. So there was a lot of little animosity there. Rightly so. I'm, and I'm not blaming the average cop or anything. I have nothing but respect for police officers. All my friends are cops. And uh, the, the last night I was there, we were in the South Tower and we found the guys from Rescue 4. Now, to get, you had to be a mountain goat to climb up this, on the, the pile. We called it the pile. You just couldn't climb up. There was one way up. 
And then there was a hole. Right, maybe the hole was five feet by four feet. The guys went in the hole and they're, they, they're in this rubble. It's amazing the things they did when they found the guys. So uh, it was getting a little hairy at that time. So they put out the call. We got the guys from four, but the, the chief of department, who was now Dan Nigro, and the chief of the police, who was Chief Esposito, thought it was too dangerous. So they wanted everybody off the pile, everybody off the south pile. But now, I didn't go in the hole, but I was in the, I was in the pathway to the hole. Uh, behind me were all police officers. And they wanted to get past me to get in the hole where they found the bodies. And I said, no, I'm, excuse me, but I'm, I'm, you can't get past me. My guys are in there. Chief, can you get out of the way? No, I'm not getting out of the way. And they, there's no way they could get in past me because of the precariousness of the situation. You know, you, you had to be a mountain goat. So now they order everybody off the pile. But I know as soon as we come off the pile, ESU is going in there to get the bodies. And then there's going to be a fist fight. There really is going to be a fist fight. Brawl. So I'm standing there. Everybody off the pile. Nobody's moving. Everybody off the pile. Nobody's moving. Then I hear D. Bernardo. D. Bernardo. The police sergeant taps me on the shoulder. say, my name's on my back. So I think they're calling you. I said, yeah, I can hear them. D. Bernardo. Yeah, what do you want? Chief of the Palm wants to see you. I'll tell him I'm busy. It's a deep, now about five minutes, a deep in auto. Chief of the Palm wants to see you. Come on down. So now the, all, all the guys, a couple of guys came out of the hole. So now I work my way down the pile. I go over to the Chief of the Palm. He says, what's going on up there? I want everybody off the pile. He's with Esposito. So I said, well, Chief, now, Nigro worked for me at one time. I was his boss because I was a staff chief at one time. I held every rank in the fire department from fireman to staff chief. The only thing I didn't hold was commissioner, but I held every uniform rank. That's another story. Um, I, now, Nigro reported to me when he was a deputy and I was a staff chief. Now he's chief of the department. One of the smartest guys I ever knew in the job. What's going on up there? I said, well, we found the guys from Rescue 4. But as soon as you pull our guys out of the hole, they're going to go. His guys, I point to Esposito, are going to go into the hole. And you're going to have a fist fight up there. You're going to have a brawl up there. You're going to have a really bad scene. So I suggest if you're going to pull them off, you better get some high-ranking police officers up there and get them off the pile. Or there's going to be a riot. So he said, Joe, we have to cooperate with the police. I said, well, I agree with you 100%, but the police have to cooperate with us. Tell that to that man standing there. Esposito always looking at me right now. I said, tell that to him. It's his guys who are the problem. Well, we got to do this. I said, chief, I'm calling you chief. If you order them off the pile, <clears throat> excuse me, there's going to be a fist fight. And it's not going to look good. So if you if you get the cops off, your guys will call them off because they follow orders. 
And I said, I'll tell you what, either you do that or you pull the whole fire department out of the scene here and let's all go home and turn everything over to the police and let's all go home. And he looked at me and said, and I'll say goodnight then and say goodbye. And I never went back. Never went back. Because there was stupid, stupid stuff going on down there. Danny Nigro was one of the smartest guys I ever met in the job. When he was a fireman, he was on Jeopardy. Oh, really? The <laughs> smartest guy. When I was on this, I was um, chief of the department. Fusco was after me for a while to get on to uh, go on to the staff. And I was, Giuliani had came in and changed the city around tremendously. He, he really, uh, the fires went from here to here. And he let the cops do their job, the broken windows policy and everything. The fire duty went and cut in half. He really cleaned up the drugs. They used to sell drugs in open markets in vacant buildings. You used to go in the vacant building. There'd be a hole in a wall to the next vacant building. You tell them what you want. You put your money through the hole. The drugs will come out of the hole. You'd walk out of the building and the runner would bring the next person. Broad daylight. When uh, Kelly... Uh, and uh, Giuliani came in. They cleaned that all up. I mean, there were shootings every night. It stopped the shootings. They cleaned. I when I used to go to work on 155th and Melrose, I would look and run in the firehouse. The first night in the firehouse, they put six nine millimeters through the door. When Giuliani came in, now we're getting into the late 90s. I used to park the car. And I walked down to 140. 149th Street and and 30th Avenue, the hub, and have pizza and a Coke before going to work. Same area that I was afraid to get out of the car before Giuliani. That's what good of a job he did. So uh, he he was a great mayor. I don't know what happened to him lately, but he was a great mayor. Uh, So anyway, I I held every rank. Uh, Tony Fusco asked me to come on for years. I finally went on. And that was nice because I was in charge of the whole city for 24 hours. And uh, half of the time when I went to Brooklyn, I couldn't find the fire. I was lost. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting. But uh, the police, the fire commissioner at the time was uh, not very respectful to his staff. His name, he was a former Fed, federal uh, law enforcement. And he was just bidding his time till he became police commissioner. And he did not treat the chiefs with respect. And I didn't like that. So we had a meeting and I said that I think we should all throw our badge on the table until he learns how to teach us, treat us with respect. He made two of the senior chiefs retire. He he said, retire or I'm going to demote you. So they retired. Two really great guys. This guy did become chief of uh, a police commissioner. And that's when Von Essen became fire commission, all with this Giuliani deal. Now, Von Essen, who was a fireman and the head of the fire unions, union, I, I thought it was going to be one of the greatest uh, fire commissioners we had because he really knew the job. Mm, not so. He just was a different breed. Now we're getting to Black Sunday. The ropes, person. The old the ropes that we had in the job were archaic. They weren't they weren't well designed. If you had to bail out, you had to find a substantial object, 
And then you had to put your rope, you know, with your beaner or your hook or your carabiner or the device, wrap it around the substantial object, hook in and go over the window and bail out. That takes seconds. Ten seconds? When a room lights up, you don't have ten seconds. You don't have one second. As witnessed by the World Trade Center fire, when people were jumping out 100 floors. When you're getting burnt, you go out the window. Well, the ropes that we had had reached their shelf life 10 years. So Von Essen said, do a study. How many times have they been used? I think they were used seven times or 17 times or whatever, but they were used. He said, it's not worth the million dollars. But we're not, they don't use them. They don't carry them. They're too bulky. And in a, in, a, in a sense, some idiots didn't carry them. When I was a fireman, I always had my own rope in my pocket in case I got in a bad situation. Okay. The, the, all the divisions sent the report and said, don't get rid of the ropes. The safety battalion wrote a report saying, don't get rid of the ropes, the safety battalion, the fireman's union that he was the president of, the safety officer, Charlie Bohan, who he worked with for years in the union, said, don't get rid of the ropes. He gets rid of the ropes. Um, this night, 2005, they go to a tenant fire, then to thousands of tenement fires. But one thing in a fire service is you never know but you never know what's going to happen. You know, you should never take anything for granted. Nothing's routine. Fire can always come up and bite you in the butt. Reported people on a top floor, a typical Bronx tenement. They go up. Fire's on the, it's a four-story tenement in the front, five stories in the rear. Typical tenement, you go up the stairs, there's uh, four apartments on a floor. Uh, let me see, yeah. Front apartments, rear apartments, reported people on the top floor, blah, blah, blah. Fires on the third floor. Uh, it's a perfect storm of everything that could go wrong. That night they had a blizzard. Snow was on the ground. Snow on the ground means a slower response, right? Number one. Number two, it was freezing out. Freezing out. Frozen hydrants. Number three. Although it wasn't snowing, the wind was still blowing. Wind-driven fires kill firemen. Okay? Three things to start out. Number four, they took their ropes away. Number five, the building superintendent or whoever did it subdivided the occupancies. So instead of one, paying, one person paying rent in this apartment, they put cubicles in the apartment. So they subdivided the apartment. So where you had one bedroom, a living room, two bedrooms, they subdivided the big living room into a, another uh, two apartments, okay? And they didn't even put the dividing wall up all the way. The one thing, so that's another, it's subdivided into SRO, single room occupancies, another strike. Not only that, when they put the partitions up, they blocked the exit to the fire escape. So you got like six things going against you. Fires on the third floor, blah, blah, blah. They're having trouble getting fired. There's a fire. They have a line on the top floor. Then 
they hit, they're, they're knocking the fire down, but it's lighting up. The partition did not go all the way to the ceiling. Fire's burning on the other side of the partition. It started in an electrical outlet because three bedrooms were plugged into one outlet, you know? So now it's burning on the third floor and it's extending to the fourth floor through the walls and the floor. You go up on the, now they're up on the fourth floor. You go in, there's a kitchen to the right, just a kitchen. That's all they see. Bedroom to the left, uh, living room to the left, two bedrooms. They're making their search. Jeff Cool punches a hole in the kitchen wall. There's fire in the kitchen wall. Oh, before they, he did that, they lost water on the line on the third floor. So they brought the line from the fourth floor down to the third floor. So now they're up there with no line. Jeff punches a hole in the wall, sees fire. He says, hmm. hey, guys, he comes around. The guy's in the living room, 27 truck. He says, guys, we got fire behind us in the kitchen. We got we to gotta get out of here. With that, the fire from the third floor burnt through to the top floor. Now it's roaring behind this wall that they can't see. They can't see this wind-driven fire. It blows the fire down the hallway to where into the kitchen. And now Jeff had left the kitchen and him telling the guys in the living room, "Hey, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. There's fire in the walls." Now the the fire is looking for oxygen, it reverses itself, and it heads towards the windows where they're standing. The room lights up. So Baloo is at the extreme right window by the partition. He leaps for the fire escape that's blocked off. He doesn't make it. He leaves a wife and four, four babies. The next window is Curtis Myron, Lieutenant Myron, just covering for the tour, a lot of 27, Eugene Stolowski, and Brendan Cawley. Brendan's a probie, first fire. His brother was killed on 9-11. They're hanging out the window. Next to that window is Jeff Cool. He's hanging out over an air conditioner. The room is engulfed in fire. These guys are burning up. They gave the mayday to mayday to mayday. You can hear that in the tapes. Um, Stalowski and Corley, lower, lower Martin, Kurt, wife and three kids. We think he died on impact. We're not sure. Um, then Eugene lowers the probie. Brendan Corley, first fire. I told them in the hospital, he says he remembers floating in space and he and he, he never remembers telling me this, but he told me this in the hospital. He says, I remember it was like slow motion. I'm going back. I could see Eugene in the window with the fire over his head. And all I could think about was my mother and father who lost their son on 9-11 are going to lose another son. And he said, I swear my brother was holding me up. And he hits the ground. Eugene now is burning up. So Eugene dives out the window. His mask gets hung up on the child guard. So it swings him down like this. He reaches back and he frees himself and he goes. He's really broken up. He suffered an, an internal decapitation. 
where his skull was separated from his spinal column. They didn't know that for 24 hours, by the way. Luckily, there was an EMT paramedic in the backyard from another company. I think, I don't know if it was Steve Gillespie or one of those guys that was in the rear yard that stabilized him. The next window, Jeff's got a rope, but he, the room's engulfed in fire. He can't tie the old fish and rope off. The next room is Joey hanging out the window. So Jeff says, Joey, I got a rope. I can lower you. I can't tie it off, but I can lower you. Joey yells back. You, you got a wife and kids. You throw me the rope. I'll lower you. He says, no, I'll lower you. No, listen, no time to argue. You're married with kids. Throw me the rope. Jeff throws him the rope. Joey wraps it around his body and his arm. Jeff goes out and he pendulums. He goes out this window like this. He pendulums, hits the side of the building, loses control, falls in the alley. So he only falls three stories. Fourth floor, third floor. That, and like it, it was five stories in the rear, but he fell He's fell one less story. Plus, he got a few feet with the rope, okay? Saved his life. But he broke everything. He, you know, he shattered his pelvis, which cut off, broke all his internal organs. Took 78 units of blood in the hospital. He broke everything. I went to visit him. His organs were on the table. They actually had to take the organs out of his body. Wife and two children. Now, Joey goes out, loses control. He goes five stories. Breaks everything below his waist, bangs his head, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm in Hawaii. I get a phone call. First vacation I ever took. I get a phone call like five or six o'clock in the morning. Hello? These guys, we used to call each other five o'clock and break chops to wake each other up. I figured they'd breaking chops again. Who's this? It's a guy from Long Island called me. Hi, Chief. How are you? Said, Who the hell is this? This is so-and-so. I, said, I knew it immediately. I said, is he alive? First words out of my mouth. Is he alive or dead? He's alive. What happened? They bailed out a window in the Bronx. Okay. Just tell me the truth. Is he alive with that? He's alive. Two other guys are gone. All right. I'm in her freaking Hawaii. I will get the first plane out of here. So luckily I called with the airlines. They got me on a flight, first flight out of there that night. I had to sit there all day wondering what was going on. Uh, I got in, I flew into Duke, motorcycle escort to the hospital. They had him in St. Barnabas. And uh my wife got a phone call and she was, it was the blizzard. They had to come and dig her out and Suffolk County PD picked her up, took her to Nassau County line, Nassau County line PD, took her to the city line, city line PD, took her to Jaco uh, J uh, Jacoby. Jeff went to St. Barnabas. I got to Jacoby. He was still conscious. Uh, but I, uh, I knew Jacoby, it's a good hospital and everything, but I, I, the best hospital in the city for his injuries 
which he broke everything below his waist, struck his head the whole nine yards. I knew Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. I told him, I, I, I talked to the head medical doctor. I said, I want him out of here. I want him in the special surgery. And he agreed with me. So that night we transported him to hospital special surgery. That day, the um, number one pelvis doctor in a special surgery put his pelvis together and started putting screws in his legs and everything. And next thing, the nurse came out. I said, how's it going? She said, good, good. Everything's going good. Okay. And then about an hour later, she said, uh, she came out. I said, don't go home. I said, what would you say? She said, don't go home. Hang around. I'll be back with you. He went, in, he went into coma. You know, I guess your, your body goes into a certain kind of shock defense mechanism. And then when everything slows down, that's when it hit. So he went into coma. They intubated him. Blah, blah, blah. And he was in, um, uh, you know, when he was in coma, they put all the screws in, in his legs. And his, it used to say, I got more metal in me than a, a Kia. <laughs> uh, they they screwed them all back together. <clears throat> we were living in a hotel that next to the hospital that the, the union provided for us. The union was fantastic. The officers' union, the firemen's union, they would, they couldn't do enough for us. And then they brought Stolowski down to that hospital. <clears throat> and I was talking to his surgeon, and he said he's. Only know seven people in the world that ever uh, survived this decapitation thing. And I said, what's the odds of him walking again? He said, one in a hundred. Gene walks today and his, his head, skull is fused to his, his spinal column. So he, he has to talk to you like this. But he walks. His wife was pregnant with twins. The twins just graduated from high school. <laughs> they're, they're great athletes isn't that a nice story you got to see his twins graduate from high school that's amazing i mean you hear of internal decapitation i mean it's just you know terrifying when you think of the the mris and the the x-rays oh, oh. so gene uh, so they were they were all hospitalized for months and then from hospitalization they all went into nursing homes and from nursing homes this was like an ordeal. I don't know, six months this was going on. So eventually they were allowed to go home, but they had to go to rehab. And then they started their campaign for safety, for fire safety. Uh, Jeff Cool, Joey, Eugene, and Brendan. So they started going around the country talking about fireman safety, safety ropes. You know, how you, you, you know, you don't, we look out for the public. We don't look out for ourselves. You know, we don't equip ourselves with safety. You don't send a, a cop out on the street with, in Yopunk, Tennessee, because the sheriff never used his gun. So cost-cutting measure, let's take his gun and his vest away. Never used it. So that's the same logic. Well, they, they hardly use them. They hardly use them. Well, you have to use it once. And that's one less funeral you have to go to. So, you know John Sorker? Um, I don't know him. We haven't met, but I'm aware of him and his books. You, you know who John Sorker and Mike Dugan, those guys are? Yes, sir. I had Mike on the show. Yeah, you know Mike. And John said, you know, we got to do something. So, anyway, don't, 
I, I skipped a little part then. <clears throat> so they're going around the country talking. They got the law changed in New York State where you have to, certain municipalities, you have to have safety ropes. Blah, blah, blah. Joey had short-term memory loss from the accident. He could tell you what happened 10 years ago, but he couldn't tell you what he had for lunch yesterday. And he would forget things. He said, Dad, how about we do this? I said, we did that already last week. Oh, I forgot. So he had a lot of soft, short-term memory loss from the accident. I talked to him that day. Uh, the night before, he said, I'm going to Pennsylvania. He had a new girlfriend. He said, I'm, going, I'm, I'm taking a vacation to Pennsylvania. I just made my reservations. And I just ordered a new thing for my computer. And one other thing. Oh, yeah. He registered at uh, uh, Suffolk Community College. He said, I think I want to be a counselor. So we went over that. He was going to go into counseling because he was doing counseling for Brookhaven Town. Anytime anybody got injured since his injury, he went around and talked to the family and everything. She said, I want to be a counselor. I registered at Suffolk. I got a new girlfriend. I just got a new part from my computer. Okay, great. That we talked on phone. That day, he came over to the house and knocked on. He said, you want to go to lunch? I said, no, man, I'm trying to lose weight. You want me to go to lunch all the time? I said, no, I don't want to go to lunch. So he left. So we surmised that night. He took his meds, had dinner, forgot that he took his meds. And they took his meds again. And he didn't wake up in the morning. So that's what happened. You know, he he um, short-term memory loss. Because he, he was planning to go to college, become a counselor. Brand new girlfriend that he was all hopped up about. So everything sort of was like finally going straight. And he went and he forgot he took his freaking meds. So. so after he passed away, by the way, his, his funeral was amazing. They came from all over the country because he was known all over the country from teaching out in Indy and down in Baltimore. Guys came from all over. It was like a thousand guys at his funeral. They shut off all the streets in the area. They had the American flags draped up over all the main roads. We had motorcycle escorts. We had, uh, it, was, it was a beautiful send-off. He would have loved it. So about six months from then, Mike Dugan, who you met, and John Sorko, who's a legend, and those guys said, you know, we got to do something for Joey's memory. Why don't, we, why don't we form a like a group and do something for him? So I said, okay, we'll form a foundation in his memory. So I read up about it, and I got the download of the forms, 5013C, not-for-profit. And I'm reading this stuff. I said, hey, this is Greek, man. I don't understand this. So I went to a local business, local accounting firm. I knocked on the door, Sini Reeves and whatever it was. And I said to them, I'd like to see the boss. She said, what's it about? And I said, she said, okay, let me see if he'll talk to you. Guy comes out, what can I do for you? I said, you can help me do this. He said, come back tonight. Said, come back at five o'clock. I went back at five o'clock and this guy sat down with me for three hours. I said, here, this is what I've made out. This is what I don't know how to make out. And he helped me make out the 5013C. I filed it. We became a non-for-profit. And we got my first seminar. It was a one-day seminar with a little meet and greet the night before. And I got Mike Dugan, 
Vinnie Dunn, you know the name Vinnie Dunn, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Vinnie Dunn is number one in America. Mike Dugan, Johnson, they're all number one A. You guys come out to teach me? Yeah, we'll come out and teach you. I got Brookhaven National Lab. I had like 60 students and we raised like $10,000, whatever. And we made our first grant that year. And then, hey, Joe, I'd like to teach for you. So I got a lot of good. So we were doing a meet and greet at night and a teaching in the day. And everybody and his brother wanted to teach for me. And by the way, these guys get three, four, five thousand dollars a lecture. They all do it for me free. So we were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So last year, we had, I had two seminars. We had 365 students at our, and we went from a lecture to two days hands on where you actually cut roofs and put out fires and all that stuff, and one lecture. And I've had anybody in the fire service that anybody has come and spoken for us free. And I had 300 students last year at our Long Island seminar. And we have a seminar out in Texas. We've given two hundreds of Texas firefighters. And I, let me just give you my latest stats. <clears throat> In 2022, we were able to provide 15 departments across the country, a total of $166,000 for the purchase of 278 PSS systems. Plus, we trained them for two days. Now, the guys we trained, these, two, uh, these guys go home and train their platoon. So one guy trains five. And then they train other guys. So it's exponential. So every one guy that comes and teaches, learns from us, teaches 10. And it's just going on. We've, te- we've trained. We've given out, this was last year, $857,000 in grants to 83 departments in 25 states. This all started outward. One, a couple of guys, 30, 65 guys, and a couple of guys. We've bought 1,598 safety systems. We've trained over 2,125 fighters. This is as of last year, 2022. This year, this doesn't include 2023. We did 165 in Texas and raised another 30 grand. And this year... Like I said, this were up to 157,000. I have, as of last night, 22 grant requests from all over the country. I'll read them to South Carolina, New Hampshire, Virginia, Kentucky, Connecticut, North Carolina, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Ohio, Ohio, Kansas. Tennessee, it goes on and on. This is over $200,000 in grant requests that I'm going to try and make this year if I get enough donations. And if you put $200,000 on top of $857,000, 
will have given away over a million dollars. Now, if that's all because of it really only three people who really are the, the main guys. Dennis Leary, the actor, has been giving us $25,000 a year. And he helps us tremendously, his foundation. They're very good to us. We wouldn't have been able to start without Dennis Leary and Robert J. Burke, the actor. Rob, Robert J. Burke put us in touch with Dennis, and Dennis is, has his own foundation, the Leary Firefighters Foundation. Bobby was on the show as well, an amazing guy. He was? Yes, yes, sir. About, um, about a year ago now, I think. Oh, so you know all about the Worcester collapse and all that. He, Larry lost his uh, cousin in the Worcester collapse. That's why he got into the charity business. So Dennis is great to us. Bobby Burke. Yeah, it was Bo- so just to be clear, it was Bobby I had on the show, not Dennis. But uh, but Bobby's obviously okay. told yeah, me about Bobby. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, and then uh, Bobby's a good friend of ours. He raises a lot of money for us. Dennis, $25,000 a year. Um, And then... Bob Farrell, Batman, of Batman and Robin, was very successful after retirement. He got into the fire tool business, and he's he owns Firehooks Unlimited down in New Jersey. Oh, really? He sends me, he sends me every year. Sends me all sorts of tools, thousands of dollars worth of tools that we raffle off at our seminars. Not only that, Bob Farrell wrote a book. Wrote a book called The War Years. No. It's the Warriors. It's all about his experiences in the fire department. And he gives 100% of the profits away. 50% go to the Honor Legion, FDNY Honor Legion, which is the metal winners. And 50% goes to my foundation. So far, Bob's probably given me $50,000. So Bob, Dennis Leary, Bob, a fellow named Frank Trotter, who is the publisher of fire news on long island and other publications is very philanthropic he sent us a check for ten thousand dollars recently and i have a a lot of friends that send a check for a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars or thousand dollars but and i have multiple people send twenty five dollars and ten dollars and we sell t-shirts we make $5 on a t-shirt. We sell coins. We make $5 on a coin. But our big thing is our seminar, which we're having this November. I'll give you, you can give me a plug about that, but thank God for Bob Farrell. Thank God for Dennis Leary and Bobby Burke and, and all our, our great benefactors. So they, without them, we, we couldn't do anything. And I had friends that I went to high school. My neighbors next door, they sent give me a check for five thousand dollars every year, and it just there's so many great people out there. We couldn't do it without them, and we couldn't do it without Mike Dugan, John Salka, and all those guys that teach for us. Vinnie Dunn, and they teach for us for nothing. So we have a great training seminar because up in New Hampshire and uh, uh, um, those uh, states up the up in New England, they don't do live burns. Oh, really? So, you know, they, a lot of them don't do live burns and we do live burns and we have a flashover simulator that we bought for the Suffolk County Fire Academy, $30,000. 
that you can, it's, it's fantastic. We do the, uh, this great training with this guy named Bobby Eckert. He gives great training. And um, Aaron Heller, his group, they give great training. And the Chiefs out in Colony in Texas, they give tr- great hands-on live training. We lift buses, cars. We put cars on the buses. We do trench rescue. We do elevator rescue at the hospital where you can rappel down 20 stories. Where else can you do that? You can't do that. We do that. We get the best training in America. The students that leave us say it's the best training I've ever had. Better than better than fire cat. You know, you, where can you go and rappel down a twenty elevation, twenty story elevation? You can't do that, and it's hard to get trench training because nobody wants to dig a trench, and you can't get do live burns. Eckert does a live burn where we burn hay, and he makes a roof, and you actually cut the roof, and we and the. The student, it's great having students that love to learn. Right? We were just out in Texas in March, and the, the guys out there, they just, oh, this is the best training I've ever had in my life. You guys are coming back. I've never had any such great training. We have this, the greatest instructors, FDNY instructors, they all come and teach for us. We're giving a class this year on this lithium-ion battery fires. That's the, that's the hottest thing around. We give a lot of leadership classes. Oh, another group. I forgot. Oh, God forbid. The Navy SEALs. Okay, Bird's Eye View was formed by a, a Navy SEAL called Ryan Parrott. He's a good friend of mine. Blown out of, you know Ryan? Yes, sir. Blown out of a army in Iraq. He sent us $25,000 last year. They did a fundraiser. They were shooting guns out of helicopters and jumping out of planes. Uh, Bobby Horton, you know Bobby Horton, right? Yeah, I had him on um, probably about three years before he passed. Yeah, he passed. Bobby Horton, Jeff Cool, and Ryan were jumping out of airplanes in Texas. They raised like 25 grand for us. What a great guy Bobby Horton was. He was. And Ryan Parrott raises money for us all the time. I'm an honorary Navy SEAL. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. They made me an honorary member of SEAL Team 7. Guys like, you know, guys like all over the country, jumps out of planes and does everything you can think of. And his son, his son does these, uh, these uh, physical things. He runs 40 miles in 40 days and he raises money for us. And a lot of the, Joey's friends did birthday fundraisers. Ah, I just tell you, you meet the nicest people in the charity business. You know, and, and I hope I didn't miss anybody. I got Bob Farrell, and uh, Brian Parrott and Dennis Leary, they're our biggest co- contributors. And Frank Trotter sent us 10 grand. And our teachers, Vinnie Dunn and uh, Tom Barry. Did you ever have Tom Barry on? I have not, no. He's another good guy to have on. Very experienced guy. But they, the foundation is doing well. We're, we're helping people. We're saving lives. We're tra- you know, just by our training on our live burns in our residential and our taxpayer training fires. People are putting out fires more efficiently in their community. They're saving property. We do the bailout training. They're, they're saving, we're saving firemen's lives. We're doing the extrication in motor vehicles, buses, uh, collapse training. We, we actually collapse buildings and go in and lift and sure. So we're saving lot. We're saving, not only saving firemen's lives, we're saving civilian lives. So it's all good. It's all good. 
So I started the fire service in 2004, and my very first apartment was Hialeah in the Miami area. And we actually did carry ropes then. And I, I, you know, I bought my own beaner and um, an eight to make sure that we had something. And it was just the, you know, the webbing uh, hasty harness if the shit hit the fan. But then as I progressed through Anaheim, California, which I know is a, is a good, a good relationship with uh, FDNY, they started bringing in more advanced bailout training so we did the ladder bailouts and um i can't remember if we had the the equipment but we had the ropes on the scots by that point and then fast forward to orange county and we actually got the harnesses and you know the descenders and the hook that went into the 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 window yeah, it's not the, the whole system it's not cheap yeah so talk to me you though so for trade. people listening you know in an ideal world what does that system look like I've, i'm very fortunate that i've seen it in person but for people listening well, I think I have, do I have one laying around here. You have the harness and you carry the rope. The rope's got a, a hook on the end. It's so simple now. You just put the hook in the windowsill or, or just put the hook on it and, you, and it has a descending device. So on this rope, there's a descending device that controls your descent. Not cheap, this stuff. All, all this stuff. So you can go out hands-free and you lower yourself. And they, they're making, they're getting better, more lighter stuff. The original stuff was heavy. It's become lighter. And it's only like 50 feet of rope, but just meant to get you below the fire. It's not like a roof rope where, you, where it's 150 feet long. You go all the way down. It's just meant to get you below the fire. That's all. And you can, and you can be hands-free. And then you go like this and you can lower yourself. So it's, and they should have it. And the reason they don't have it is because expense. A lot of these fire departments that I talk to all around the country, they need hose and ladders. And that comes before, you know, in the budget and replacing apparatus. That all comes before, I had to say, it's safety. Everything's, you know, salaries come first. That's the biggest expense. Quarters, salary quarters, you know. You know, apparatus and quarters, that's a big one. You know, apparatuses today are $3 million. $3 million. Imagine what a tower ladder costs today. Oof. And it's um, it's all good. It's uh, out of bad came good, you know. Um, and it's all because one stupid guy, uh, Von Essen, hope he's listening, uh, took away the ropes. And I can't believe a union guy would have done something like that. He could have been the best. And he made a decision and it was the wrong decision. And you don't send, you don't send uh, like Indiana Jones, right? He had a, he had a, the guys there with the, the knife and he had the gun and the whip, the knife and his gun. Said, well, why would I use a knife when I have a gun? You don't take a knife to a gunfight. You, you don't put the, Fireman, you don't put a cop out there without his vest and his uh, gun. You don't put the fireman out there with this stuff. I had written down, I, I, I had some uh, some um, tips that I had given once before, if you, if you want. Yeah, please. Okay, I wrote a few down. I had given these out before. These are my tips. And beware the expert. I've been to a thousand fires. I don't consider myself an expert. There, there are no experts in firefighting because every now and then 
Black Sunday fight, tenement fight, been to 10,000 tenement fights. You never know when it, something's different. Something's going to happen. So don't become, and, and, and uh, you get these guys, when you go to these conferences around the country, he's going to give you a lecture on firefighting because he put a, a good stick together and he's been to 10 fires in the last 10 years. You know, but he's an expert and he's going to teach you. There are no experts. There are no experts. Uh, train, 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 and then train again. In the infantry, we used to bl- we used to be able to take our weapons apart, blindfold it, and reassemble them. And why is that? Because in reality, in the dark, in the night, in the middle of a monsoon, you can't see six inches in front of you. And if your gun jams, you got to be able to take it apart and reassemble it to clear it. So what you want to do is train, 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 train. So it's muscle memory. So you're practicing the roof rope, single slide. You do it, you do it, you do it, you do it until it's muscle memory. You don't have to think about it. Is it three turns to the right or is it three turns to the left? Or where do I put the hook? Or, you know, it's, so it's, you develop muscle memory. So at three o'clock in the morning on a, a smoky snowy night you don't even have to think about it you just go right into muscle memory and the only way you're going to do that is train 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 and the best train but the best drills i used to give i love to give this one is man down the worst thing in the world you want as a fireman is a fireman down and i used to when i go around i would pick the biggest guy and tell him to go down the basement and lay on the floor turn the lights out and we're going to do a may day and i would get the smallest guy and I said, we, a lot of times we black out their face piece. Go down there, make a search, and give us a May Day when you find them. And they would do that. And I said, you, you're going to be surprised how long it takes to get the guy out of the basement after the May Day. So I picked the, big, the biggest guy. I'd go down, dark. We send the guy down. He did the May Day. Now he's trying to move this 225-pound guy in bunker gear with a scot on, forget it. So he calls for help. The two of them, they can't even get the guy up the stairs. And now, this is not out of fire. This is no smoke. And it's not another stressful situation. You'd be surprised how difficult it is to, until you teach them the tricks to do with the webbing. There are tricks that you can do with webbing to help you lift and carry. The only way you're going to learn that is by training on it. Instead of sitting there watching the ball game, you should be down in the basement lifting up your friend. We had a fire in the city where a, a big, pretty big guy went down in a basement fire in a, in a small basement in a, in a PD. They couldn't get him up. They couldn't get him up the stairs. The guy wound up dying. He had a heart attack. Uh, that's the man down drill. I give it. All, I gave it. Was one of the best drills I ever gave. Here's a good one. See the big picture. Don't have tunnel vision. You're coming down the block. Flies out the window. And you see the fire. And you look, and you're looking at the fire coming out the window, and you you go running and do your job. Now, I was a covering lieutenant. I went to fire in Harlem. I I think I, I was like the fourth do engine or something, or the second alarm engine. And the uh, 
I reported it, and the chief said, stand fast and everything, blah, blah, blah. He said, he was blackjack Fogarty, tough old chief, really knew what he was doing. He said, turn around, lieutenant. What floor was the fire on? He said, the fourth floor chief. He said, was there a, how many uh, windows are on the fourth floor? Uh, what color was the smoke? Uh, is there a front fire escape? What's exposure to? What's exposure for? And I'm there. The, uh, the, you know what I, all I did, all I could see was the fire out the window. I didn't see, was it exposing to the floor above? What, was it on a fire escape? Was it off the fire escape? So my, my thing is see the big picture. Don't just zoom in on the fire. Okay. Um, know your response area. Instead of sitting around on a Saturday afternoon, right around, go into the stores and ask them, where's your basement entrance? Is it behind the counter? Uh, take a look at the back door. See how he's got the back door barricaded. Go up on the roof. Look for big air conditioning units or something where there's going to be heavy weight. Because you might have a fire in the basement and you'll say, I, I've been here. The entrance to the basement is behind the counter. The back door's got a fox lock on it. You're never going to force it. Uh, the roof's got a heavy air conditioning unit right over that spot. So these are things you should all know your district and know it before you go to a fire. Right? Beware the trust. This new construction is horrible. It's dangerous. It's going to kill firemen. And everything's up there is being trussed. Check it out when it's being built to see if there's fire stopping in the cockloft. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're very dangerous and they're firemen killers. So beware of any trust construction. I, I fear it. Okay. You get promoted. This is when I always told my first, when my officers, new officers came. If I get a new lieutenant, captain, battalion chief to report to me, Assigned to the division, they report to me, have a seat, have a cup of coffee. And the first thing I would tell them was, you were promoted to serve your men, not to have them serve you. In other words, some guys think they're a chief now. You know, no, you are there to serve your men, not to have them serve you. I always ingrained that in the new offices. Um, Another thing I used to tell a company officers, be the tip of the spear. Don't be. Don't ever say, "How you doing down there?" or "How you doing up there?" You you got to be up there. You're the tip of the spear. When I was in an engine company, I was the backup man. I told. I used to tell the guys, "See my this is this, see in my back of my coat." Nobody goes past me. Nobody goes past me. I'll be with the nozzle man. I'm the tip of the spear. I'm not going to be at the doorway going, how you doing in there? Guys lose respect for you. How you doing down there? You have to be in there with them and you're the tip of the spear. Be a lead, a leader and you lead from the front because there's nothing like a, a shit officer. They don't have any respect for you. You know, and it, 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 it tarnishes the badge. And another thing I would tell all my new officers and even the senior men, Treat all people with equal respect. I treated, I talked to probies like I talked to chiefs. I treated them with this. I didn't treat them any different. Every man, you treat every man and woman with the same respect. If a guy's a, a, if the guy sucks, I just didn't talk to him. Right? 
I, I didn't disrespect them, but I didn't talk to them. And but the, I taught I talked to probies. I sat there, like when the when I would come in the kitchen, the probies would stand up. I said, no, 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 sit down, sit down. You want coffee, Chief? I'll get you coffee. No, no, sit down. I'll get you coffee. And they, you know, something they like that. They like that. So treat everybody with respect. Treat everybody with equal. And my last thing I'll tell you is show your front piece. And by that, I mean, if you're the lieutenant or the captain or the chief, they want to see you at the fire, in the fire. They don't want to see you in the street going, how you doing in there? You know, I watch, I've been watching this. I don't even want to tell you the show. I watch some live action fire shows. I mean, the disgrace, some of these guys, they were a disgrace. I used to like when I got everybody organized and everything settled and we're going under control. I love to go into the building, into the smoke, and come walking through the smoke. And they see the deputy chief, the gold piece, and they go, Holy shit, the deputy's up here. What's up, chief? How are you feeling? I feel fine. You want to blow? You want to guys? You guys, no, we're good. We're good. Uh, I, you sure you guys are all right? Yeah, now you guys took a beating. Get out of here. I'm going to relieve you. Uh, you guys, go home. I'm going to relieve you, give you guys some rest. But be the fifth floor. No, de- a lot of deputies, they didn't walk up to the fifth floor. They didn't want to walk up to five flights of stairs. But I always made it a point. I had, Captain of Ed 92 Engine was a guy named Ed Kilduff. He became chief of the department. Jeff, I have to get him on. Oh, I haven't had a chance he, to get him a, on yet, no. He'd be great. And when he was the captain of 92, he used to say, I used to love to see you walking through the smoke with your little clipboard. I said, that little <laughs> clipboard, that little clipboard was my command post. And I put out a third alarm with that clipboard. You know, Now they got these things with electronic TV screens and beepers and lights and everything. I had a clipboard with a grease pencil, good to third alarm. And I knew where everybody was. That's another thing. You always got to know where everybody is in case of a collapse, you know? I want you on the roof. I have, I draw my little drawing. I had them on the roof. Uh, 39, you go to the third floor. And I have 39 so high. If I collapse, I know where everybody is. But show the front piece. They love, I mean, I worked in areas where the, some chiefs didn't get out of the car because it was a vacant building. To me, I didn't care. I, what are you doing? He says, what do you want me to do? He said, you, want, you can go up and see how to do it. Okay, I'll do that. I went in. I was in the building showing the guys that I get. I'm in there taking a feed with them. And, they, and I got their respect for that. The guy that was sitting in the car didn't have their respect. So those are my tips. You just made me. Beware the expert. I'm sorry, Jim. I just because you just made me. I just hadn't thought about this in years, but I just flashed back to Hialeah. I don't know what the backstory was, but I was a brand new probie and it was a car fire. The LT and the engineer sat in the rig. Obviously, he must have sent me water while I put that out on my own. You know what I mean? And so you, just with you saying that, it's not even a chief position. You're talking about your yeah. LT and your, your engineer sitting there. You know, and I'm, I'm a pretty new guy, so I, mean, I could have been right up on the freaking wheel well and blow my knees off. Or who knows? You know, a little experience would have helped. But, but yeah, that's a classic example from earlier in my career of even yeah, well, lower. Yeah, you're probing. Yeah, you could, you know, tires blow. Gas tanks ignite. I, 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 I've never seen, I, I've been to a lot of conferences, hundreds and hundreds, but I've been lucky. I've never seen a, a gas tank let go. 
where there was an explosion. Never. Now, a lot of people have, but I've never done it. I've never seen it. So, but th- I, and also, I have not had a lithium ion car fire yet, which is another problem. And that I have to learn about that. I, why do I have to learn about it? Because I might go somewhere in a, like when I was just out in Texas, a lot of guys were coming up to me and asking me questions. And, you know, if I could have the answer, I, I share with them, but they, they might be coming up and asking me about these car fires and I got to go back to school. So we ha- we're having two guys from Hazmat give us a class in that now. Because I want to learn about that. So when I go to Texas or somebody, hey, chief, what about these car fires? I said, the only thing I heard is you got to put them in a dumpster. <laughs> full of dumpster, full of water, put them in a dumpster. Because they reignite. Yeah. One of, one of my guests who's a British firefighter was saying that they've seen you know the, the explosive element too. In fact, I think, I want to say, have I got this right? A female... I think it was in the UK. A female firefighter was... Oh, no, that's what it was. It was it was a resident, my apologies, a resident of a building. Someone had put their electronic scooter, which is not very big as far as the batteries, outside the, yeah. outside the flat and uh, caused a fire it's and she died. Time. Yeah, so you imagine the explosive quality of that world trade exactly. I think he said the same thing. If you put X amount of uh, electronic vehicles under a building that you want to take down... In 2023, we have a completely different problem now. We had we have had 17 deaths in New York City with lithium-ion batteries. I've seen video, security video of where they store them, like a Chinese restaurant. They make their deliveries with them, so they store them inside at night. They're closed. I, I, I've seen actual videos of them going on fire, and it goes, they explode and it goes from nothing to completely involved in 30 seconds. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's, and it's, they're not going to cure the problem because the, when you buy these scooters, the battery's only good for X amount of time. You're not going to spend $200 on a battery. You're going to, or $300 on a good battery. You're going to buy the cheap imitation made in Hong Kong. And what happens with that? This is what I understand. The battery and the charging system don't talk to each other properly. The good battery, they talk to each other properly. The poor battery, they don't talk to each other properly. So this thing overheats and explodes. And, you know, where do they put the right by the door on their way out? Mm-hmm. Right? And then they can't get out. Exactly. Where do the, all these electrical cars start uh, you know, going on fire. Yeah. Well, even extrication. I mean, I, I transitioned out to do this full time um, five, almost five years ago now. And I never really got exposed to a lot of extrication of electronic vehicles because they were just starting to come in the Prius and some of those. And you know how it is, you know, at the scrapyard, usually it's pretty old cars that you get to tear up. Um, so I can't imagine trying to do an extrication now with all these cables running through the A post and B post and all these other areas. Yeah, they say now you can't displace the dash because the floorboard, if you compress into the floorboard, it, it disturbs the battery compartment because the whole frame on the carriage is, lit, is the batteries. So if you do the d- dashboard displacement, you know, it's going to disturb the shield of all those batteries and you're going to cr- create another problem. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of things you got to learn. Yeah. 
They, everything's changing. The, the airbags are changing. Everything's changing. There's batteries in the back of the car. There's batteries in the front of the car. Even though, like, my car's got two batteries in it, SUV. It's got a regular battery in the front that's got a little battery in the back. Yeah. And they say, you know, don't cut the batteries because you can't open the doors. You can't get the people out. Yeah, there's, there's so much to learn. You gotta, it's constantly evolving. It's not like the old days. The old days was simple and easy. Yeah. It was, and it was different. Yeah. Was good. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, but I want to make sure that before we do close up, people know where to find the foundation. So you've talked about the conferences. You've talked about the ability to donate. Um, where's the best place online to find you? Yeah, joeydfoundation.org. joeydfoundation.org. We have a website. It'll, it'll tell you a lot about us and everything. You can look at all the departments we've given money to you can see what's going on we have list all our donors and sponsors on there and uh it's a great little thing we got going here i don't know how long i'm going to be able to do it i hope they continue on when i can't do it anymore i'm getting a little up there <laughs> but uh that's my life you know my friends are playing pickleball and golf and now i'm doing this and we're just gearing up again now for our, I just made my contacts with the hotel and everything. And we're just gearing up. We're going to get gear up. We go to Home Depot and we get uh, Home Depot, donate some lumber. It gives us a good price because we build all our props that they cut off and burn. We have, you know, taxpayer burns, residential burn, and we build our roofs. And then we have guys cut roofs, which where do you get the kind of roof? See, in the old days, we used to, in the city, when everything was vacant, going nuts, we would take the probies to the vacant buildings and cut roofs and force doors. That's a great, that's another training prop that's out there. That they have some great doors to for, learn how to force doors. Great training props that we did not have. So I, I, that's a great skill to learn, forcing doors as a firefighter. So if your rabbit tool or your bunny tool breaks, you got to use the halogen and the axe. You got to know how to do it. But like I said, train, train, train. I used to go over. We used to go over to uh, to, to the training and go on the roof, and we would not secure the. We would do roof rope rescues without securing them. We would just have two guys hold onto the roof and brace themselves against the parapet, and guys go over the roof because that's going to happen someday. Well, you can't tie off. The one they did recently in Manhattan that was on all the news. Yes. You saw that one, right? That, you know what they did? They put a hook in the doorway. A hook in the doorway of the entrance to the apartment. And they tied off on that. Is that smart thinking? That is. Yeah, absolutely. So you got to think outside the box. Because everything isn't always going to be perfect. It's good to conduct a drill and say you need six items for the drill. Pull out item number four. Let's see how the drill goes. Let them improvise. You, know, you got you got It's all up to the officers and the leadership. You know, it's all up to the guys. And the, the beauty of giving seminars is you meet hundreds and hundreds of firefighters that want to learn, and officers that want to learn, and. and Nothing like being a teacher to have a student that wants to learn. 
because half your job is done already. They're motivated. And, and it's the greatest feeling in the world when they come up here to the class and say, thank you so much. I learned so much. Go back home and teach that now. So we got a great thing going here. Let's keep it going. Send this. If everybody out there, you got 6,000 listeners, I said the same thing to on another thing. I said, if everybody, you told me you got 4,000 listeners. Well, just have each one of them send me a dollar. That's $4,000. I could buy five systems. So you got thousands of listeners. Just send me a dollar on PayPal. I get 97 cents from the dollar. <laughs> well, there we go. Everyone I'll listening, buy. there's your challenge. We put it yeah, out there now. Just send a dollar. <laughs> a dollar, man. What's a dollar? What's your $3 to get a piece of pizza nowadays? Send me $3. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> JoeyDFoundation.org. Jeff Cool. Bob Farrell, Dennis Leary, Ryan Parrott, all those great guys, Frank Trotter, uh, all the guys that teach for us, John Sorga, Mike Dugan's always teaching for us. All those great guys, Vinny Dunn, they're all legends. You guys are learning from the best, man. We're not going to be around much longer, so you got to pick our brains now. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope I helped you out a little here. I hope that you enjoyed our discussion yeah well i was gonna say i, I want to thank you so much i mean you leading us through i mean even just just the the vietnam element in itself was was uh stories that you don't hear very often because even that generation as you said are, are getting older and we're losing more people but then leading us through your career and obviously you know your sons uh you know the tragic event that happened and also clearing up some you know some realities that are you can survive a, you know, an incident and still carry the physical you know um elements and and the uh the confusion you know the the brain injury that led to that um and then the beautiful foundation that's grown out of this so i want to thank you so much for being so generous today we've we've talked for over three hours and it's been an amazing oh conversation god. oh my god i didn't know what i was going to say for 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> well you smashed it <laughs> but someday i'll tell you some between you and me i could tell you vietnam stories that i don't talk about that'll curl your hair but that's another thing well, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to let people know about my foundation. And you have your guests are amazing. And keep up the good work and, of keeping America safe and keeping America's firefighters safe and America's military and uh, veterans and uh, all the special people that you talk to on your, your website. It's a beautiful website. God bless you.